Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, housekeeping. Well, the last housekeeping was intense. Got some new music all of you are dealing with emotionally. (laughs) Got some grief over the new music. Let's just hang out with it for a while. See how we feel in the new year. Also dropped a paywall on the podcast. For those who need my rationale around all that, you can listen to The Last Housekeeping in the public feed. Uh, Those of you who are subscribers never even heard it. Anyway, to make a long story short, unless you subscribe to the podcast through samharris.org, you will only be getting partial episodes now. For instance, today's podcast is around three hours long, but if you're listening on the public feed, you'll get the first hour, merely. So if you care about the conversations I'm having here and want to hear them in their entirety, subscribing through samharris.org is the only option. I'm clearly at odds with the trend here of all podcasts being free and ad-supported, but all I can say is that the response has been fantastic, and the podcast is on much better footing even after only a week. So thank you for that. As always, if you actually can't afford a subscription, I don't want money to be the reason why you don't get access to my digital content, whether that's the Making Sense podcast or the Waking Up app or anything else that I might produce in this space. And the solution for that is, again, if you can't afford it, simply send an email to support at samharris.org for the podcast and support at wakingup.com for the app. And you'll get a free year. And you can do that as many times as you need. We don't means test these things. There are no follow-up questions. This is based on your definition of whether you need this for free. And that's as it should be. So anyway, this is the business model. The podcast is now a subscription just like the app. And if you can't afford it, you can have it for free. Okay. So today I'm speaking with Donald Hoffman, and I'm joined by my wife, Annika. This is the first time we have jointly interviewed a guest, and uh, I'm sure it won't be the last. Annika's interest in this topic definitely helped us get deeper into it. Donald Hoffman is a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine. His writing has appeared in Scientific American and on Edge.org, and his work has been featured in The Atlantic, Wired, and Quanta. And his new book is The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. And there was an article in The Atlantic profiling him that made the rounds. He also had a TED Talk that uh, many found bewildering. As you'll hear, he has what he calls a user interface theory of perception, and many people find this totally confounding, and it can seem crazy at first glance, and even at second glance. And I must say, when I first read the Atlantic article and watched his TED talk, I wasn't entirely sure what Hoffman was claiming. As you'll hear, Annika got very interested in his work and had several meetings with him, and then we finally decided to do this podcast. 
and it is a fairly steep conversation. I do my best to um, define terms as we go along. But for those of you for whom this is your sort of thing, I think you'll love it. Over the course of three hours, we really leave virtually no stone unturned in this area. We talk about how evolution has failed to select for true perceptions of reality. We talk about Hoffman's interface theory of perception. We talk about the primacy of math and logic and what justifies our conviction there. Talk about how space and time cannot be fundamental to our framework. We talk about the threat of epistemological skepticism. Causality is a useful fiction. The hard problem of consciousness. Agency, free will, panpsychism. What Hoffman calls the mathematics of conscious agents. Philosophical idealism, death, psychedelics the relationship between consciousness and mathematics, and many other topics. And now, Annika and I bring you Donald Hoffman. We are here with Donald Hoffman. Donald, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sam. It's a great pleasure. So this is, uh, this is unusual. This is the first time that Annika, my wife, who's only been on the podcast once, many of our listeners will remember that podcast, it's the first time anyone has heard me laugh out loud in, in a decade. Uh, so you, you came to my attention on the basis of an Atlantic article, I think, that was making the rounds. And uh, you also had a TED Talk. I don't know which yeah. preceded the other. But then Annika just got completely obsessed with what you were doing. And you know, maybe once a month or so, I would hear that there was some export from a conversation she was having with you. So it just seemed like, you know, it would be professional malfeasance for her not to really anchor this conversation. So, Absolutely. So, right. uh, Annika. That, you know, was, that was all in the context of my writing my book. I was doing research for my book, and Don was working on a book on a similar topic, or really on the same topic, yes. with a different perspective. And so, yeah, so I, so I had wanted his input on my manuscript and was honored that he trusted me with his manuscript and we kind of we actually gave each other we were kind of in the writing process together so gave each other notes and then don was extremely generous with his time and continued to meet with me as i had <laughs> many follow-up questions and yeah yeah put put up with with my curiosity even though oh it was um, great i'm not, great I'm not sure any of it was helpful to you but i it was it was, it was great for me to it was very much fun for me and, and, and very, very helpful because you also gave me feedback on my book and really helped bring my book to a broader audience as well. So I was grateful. And I was really grateful that you did all the driving. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, but before we jump into your thesis, which is, I mean, has the virtue of being on what I think is perhaps the most interesting topic of all, and some of the points you make are so counterintuitive as to seem crazy on their face. So it's going to be fantastic to wade into this with you. But what is, how do you summarize your academic and intellectual background before we get started? Well, so I, I did my undergraduate bachelor's at uh, UCLA in what was called quantitative psychology. It was like a, a major in psychology and a minor that had like computer science and math courses in it. Mm. And while I was doing that, I took a graduate class with Professor Ed carter in which we were looking at artificial intelligence and ran across the papers of David Marr. Right. This is like in about 77, 78. 
And his papers just really grabbed my attention. Here was a guy that was trying to build visual systems that worked with mathematical precision, not just waving your hands, but actually writing down mathematics and something that you could actually build eventually into a robotic vision system. So I found out he was at MIT in the AI lab and what's now the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department. And I was lucky enough to get to go there and, and work with him. He, he died a little over a year after I was there. So I only got to work with him for 14 or 15 months. Yeah, very young. He was like 35, right? 35. Yeah. He, had, he had leukemia. But, yeah. but, but I did get to work with him and see how his mind works. It was revolutionary. It was a wonderful time yeah. there at MIT. And then my, my other advisor was Whitman Richards. They, they, David Marr and Whitman Richards were my joint advisors. And then Whitman was my sole advisor after Marr died. And so I was very interested in going there in the problem of, you know, are we machines? And I figured, what better way to get at that question than doing something in an artificial intelligence lab where we try to build machines and understand the, the scope and limits of what machines mm. could do. So I was always very interested in human nature and how, you know, artificial intelligence is related to humans. Are we just artificial intelligences ourselves, just machines, or is there something more? And I didn't want a hand wave. I really wanted to understand what it means to be a machine and what might be different or not about humans. And so, so that's sort of my, my intellectual background. And what I focused on because, you know, of, of Mar was perception, visual perception. Yeah. So he, he wrote a book that was, was quite celebrated, a very, you know, early detailed look at visual perception, which it's, it's amazing what a contribution he made in such a short time. Decades after his death, you know, his book is still recommended as, as a must read book in cognitive science and neuroscience. Absolutely. It, it was brilliant. And he was brilliant in person. It, the, the lab meetings were, were electric. He had assembled this world-class group of scientists around him. They, mm. they, they congregated around him. And I, I just was so lucky to be watching this new science being revolutionized by, by this young man. Yeah, at 35, he, he did all this and, and, and died. It was, it was truly stunning. Yeah. You're now at Irvine as a professor, right? That's right. University of California at Irvine. Yeah. And you have been meeting over the years with some of the great lights in consciousness studies, for lack of a better word. There was these meetings of the uh, Helmholtz Society. Isn't that what you were called? Yeah, the Helmholtz yeah. Club. We call Helmholtz it. Club, yeah. Right. So, right. so uh, And that had Francis Crick in it. And I never met Francis, but Joe Bogan, who you write about in your book, yes. is somebody who I, who I did meet. And he was quite a character. He's he quite was, a character. Yeah. yeah. He was fun at dinner. Yeah, he's, he was the neurosurgeon who did the bulk of the split-brain procedures for which Roger Sperry won the, the Nobel Prize. And, That's right. And yeah. uh, Aran Zidell at UCLA was involved in that work, and Michael Gazzaniga. Yes. And, yeah. Before we jump in, I, I want our listeners to be sensitized to how seemingly preposterous some of your initial claims will be. And, right. and, I, and I can guarantee you that on certain of these points, the sense of their counterintuitiveness will wear off. And there's something thrilling about this. I mean, this the, the thrill that was you know, exemplified by Annika's obsession with your work, I know has spread to uh, other people. We have a friend who perhaps I shouldn't name who claimed that she, she accosted you at some function and just completely fangirled you as a, as a groupie. So we know that I think once you start wearing sunglasses indoors, you, you will have started a cult, and, and uh, then we will we'll <laughs> put the word out against you. But um, in the meantime, 
perhaps the best place to start, I mean, I, I would imagine we should just track through it the way you do it in your book, starting with the interface theory of perception. But you can start wherever you want, and we, we just want to go through it all, and we'll have questions throughout. Right. So most of my colleagues who study perception assume that evolution by natural selection has shaped us to see truths about the world. None of my colleagues think that we see all of reality as it is. But most of my colleagues would argue that accurate perceptions, what we call veridical perceptions, perceptions that tell us truths about the world, will make us more fit. So accurate perceptions, vertical perceptions are fitter perceptions. And the argument that's classically given is actually quite intuitive. So, so the idea is that those of our ancestors who actually were better at feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating because they could see reality as it is, were more likely to pass on their genes, which coded for the more accurate perceptions. And so after thousands of generations of this process, we can be quite secure that our perceptions are telling us truths about the world. Of course, not exhaustive truths, but the truths that we need. We see those aspects of reality that we need to stay alive and reproduce. And that seems like a really compelling argument. It seems very, very intuitive. How could it go wrong? So at first glance, it seems some measure of veridicality, some measure of being in touch with reality as it is, would increase an organism's fitness. There must be a fit between tracking reality as it is and adaptive advantage. Exactly. That's, that's the standard intuition for, for most of my colleagues. Steven Pinker has actually published papers where he points out some, some contradictions to that idea, but most of my colleagues would go with the idea that, yeah, it's, it's better, it's more fit to see reality as it is, at least part of reality. I began to think that that might not be true because my initial intuition was that maybe it would just take too much time and too much energy to see reality as it is. So evolution tries to do things on the cheap, so maybe the pressures to do things quickly and cheaply would, would maybe compromise our ability to see the truth. And so I began to work with my graduate students, Justin Mark and Brian Marion, around 2008 or so, 2009. And I had them write some simulations where we would simulate foraging games where we could create worlds with resources and put creatures in those worlds that could roam around and compete for resources. And some of the creatures we let see all the truth, so they were the, the vertical creatures. And others I didn't let see the truth at all. We, we had them only see the fitness payoffs. And we can talk about what fitness payoffs mean. That's right. an important mm -hmm. concept. Mm -hmm. But what we found was in these simulations that the, that the Creatures that saw reality as it is couldn't outcompete the creatures of equal complexity that saw none of reality and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs. And so that began to make me think there was something real here. So now I should say what fitness payoffs yeah, are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So think in evolution, you can think of evolution by natural selection much like a video game. So in a video game, your focus is to collect points as quickly as you can without being distracted by other things. And if you get enough points in a short enough time, you then might get to go to the next level, otherwise you die. And in evolution by natural selection, it's very, very similar. The, instead of the game points, you have fitness payoffs. And you go around collecting them as quickly as you can, and if you get enough, you don't go to the next generation, but your genes get passed to the next generation. 
And so, so to be a little bit more specific, think about the fitness payoff that, say, a, a T-bone steak might offer. So that if you're a hungry lion looking to eat, that T-bone steak offers lots of fitness payoffs. But if you're that same lion and you're full and you're looking to mate, all of a sudden that T-bone steak offers you no fitness payoffs whatsoever. And in, if you're a cow in any state and for any activity, that T-bone steak is not, gonna, is not a fit thing <laughs> for you whatsoever. And, and so that gives you an intuition about what we mean by fitness payoffs in, in evolutionary theory. Fitness payoffs do depend on the state of the world, whatever the objective reality might be. They do depend on the state of that world, but also, and importantly, on the organism, its state, and the action. And so fitness payoff functions are really complicated functions, and the state of the world is only one of the parts of the domain of that function. There's lots of other aspects to it. And so they're really, really complicated functions of the state of the world and the organism, its state, and its action. Right. Well, so now I think you should introduce the desktop analogy, because again, so what you just said can sound suspiciously similar to more or less what every life scientist and certainly neuroscientist would agree is true, which is whatever reality is, we see some simulacrum of it that is you know, broadcast to us by the way our, our, our nervous system sections up the world. So you know, we see within a certain bandwidth of light, you know, bees detect you know, another bandwidth, and we, by the very nature of this, don't get all the information that's available to be gotten. So we don't have a complete picture of the thing in itself or the reality that's behind appearances. But implicit in that kind of status quo assumption is that the things we do see really exist out there in the real world in some basic sense in space and time. Again, it's not clear how much gets lost in translation, but there is some conformity between what we see as a glass of water on the table and a real object in the world in you know, third-person space. How is your vision of things departing from what is now scientific common sense? Yeah, it does depart dramatically from that, that standard view. The standard view, as you said, is that we may not see all of the truth, but we do see some aspects of reality accurately. And what the evolutionary simulations and then later theorems that, that, that my colleague Chetan Prakash proved indicate is that our perceptions were shaped by natural selection not to show us just the little bits of truth we need to see, but rather to hide truth altogether and to give us instead a user interface. So if you, you know, a metaphor I like to use is if you're writing a book and the icon for the book is blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen, does that mean that the book itself in your computer is blue and rectangular in the middle of the computer? Well, of course not. Anybody who thought that really misunderstands the point of the user interface. It's not there to show you the truth, which in this metaphor would be the circuits and software and voltages in, in the computer. The interface is there explicitly to hide the truth. If you had to toggle voltages to, to write a book, you'd never get done. And if you had to toggle voltages to send an email, people would never hear from you. So the point of a user interface is to completely hide the reality and to give you very, very simplified user interface to let you control the reality as much as you need to control it 
while being utterly ignorant about the nature of that reality. And that's what the simulations that I've done with my students and the theorems that I've done with, with Chaitan Prakash indicate is that, that natural selection will favor organisms that see none of the truth and just have this simplified user interface. So to be very explicit, three-dimensional space as we perceive it is just a three-dimensional desktop. It's not an objective reality independent of us. It's just a data structure that our sensory systems use to represent fitness payoffs and how to get them. And three-dimensional objects like tables and chairs, even the moon, are just three-dimensional icons in that interface. So once again, they're not our species representations of a true glass that's really out there or a true table that's out there. They are merely data structures that we're using to represent fitness payoffs and how to get them. So, so yes, in this first description of this wonderful analogy you use with the desktop and also of how evolution gives us this false picture of what the deeper reality actually is. I have a few questions here. I'm going to start. I'm not quite sure where, where it will go. But there are at least three things that have been brought up so far that, that I feel like it's, it's important for us to get clear on terminology and framework before I start really disagreeing. <laughs> and I should say that, that I, you, know, you and I have now spent many meetings together. I spend a lot of time challenging you, mostly because I actually think there's something very interesting that you're doing, and I think you're on to something. And so you know, in the same way that in my editing work, I give the most notes to the books I'm most passionate about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in that spirit. So, that. so beginning with evolution, I've actually said to you many times that I don't actually think you need the evolution argument to make your case for your theory. Mm-hmm. So some of, the, some of this pushback is actually moot, but I still think it's interesting. And I think I, I agree with this, with this evolution argument up to a point. So my, my first question is really to just get us, you know, on the same page or see if we are on the, on the same page as a starting point. I know that you believe that, or you're hopeful, you're optimistic about the fact that we can ultimately understand what that deeper reality is. Yeah. And so that, so there must be boundaries to the systems that we're using, our brains, which have evolved where we can actually get access to the truth. So, so up until to a point, our brains are giving us all of this false information, but there's some sense in which we can actually get access to things that are true about the nature of reality. So my question is, where do you draw the boundary of an evolved system that by definition gives us false information about the nature of reality so that outside that boundary is where we might be able to gain access to information that delivers us the truth. And there's kind of a second part to that, which is where we might disagree. I, I believe we've already begun to cross that boundary with science. And so the way I follow your evolution argument is simply about direct perceptual information that we get rather than ideas, scientific experiments. So, so if you just take light, light I think is always the, the simplest example. We have not evolved perceptual systems to really understand what light is, right? Like everything, everything we've learned about light through the sciences up to quantum mechanics where it gets completely mysterious and we really don't actually know what light is. So, so we can kind of all agree 
and not just the three of us in this room, but all of us, you know, most scientists would agree that ultimately we're still, we still don't have this information about what the fundamental nature of reality is. We're, we're, we're still stuck there. But I would say that we have learned, we've gotten much closer to that by these processes that I think are outside the boundary of this evolved system that is by definition delivering us false information. Right. Great question. And there's a, a couple points about it. First, that the, the arguments that I've given from evolution by natural selection against veridical perceptions do not hold against math and logic. Mm -hmm. So that's very, very different than some other like Christian apologists like Alvin Plantinga, mm -hmm. who have made an argument that sounds very similar to mine, that they say that if our senses, if, if our cognitive capacities evolved, they would be unreliable. That includes our theory building capacity, and therefore the theory of evolution is unreliable, and therefore evolution is false. I'm making no such argument. Right. I'm, it, it's further, the furthest thing from my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm focused only on the senses. And the reason why the argument that says our senses are not veridical doesn't hold for math and logic is that there are evolutionary pressures for us to reason about fitness payoffs. Two bites of an apple give you roughly twice the fitness payoff of one bite of an apple. Whatever objective reality might be, we need to be able to reason about fitness payoffs. And so, whereas the selection pressures are uniformly against vertical perceptions, they're not uniformly against some elementary competence in math and logic. Now, I'm not, of course, arguing that natural selection is shaping us to be geniuses at math and logic. Far from it. It's just that the selection pressures are not mm -hmm. uniformly against ability. And but every once in a while you get a, you know, yeah. a genius coming but, out. But don't we think the math and logic are giving us space-time? I mean, the, 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 this, this can get into a deeper question because, of course, we, we now have quantum mechanics, which is putting all of this into question. And, and many physicists, if not most, are, are talking about space-time being something that emerges out of something more fundamental. But they would still say that it emerges. And so I, it seems that it's hard to take. So I, I, I guess my, my argument with where you take this evolution argument is as far as space-time itself, because right. it seems that we don't yet know <laughs> whether yeah. space-time is a true, true illusion in, in some sense. But I would say our math and logic has, has taken us that far, not simply our, our perceptual systems. Actually, let, let me see if I can add to this point, because this is something that came up for me as well. So if we confine this to perception, for me, it's no longer counterintuitive. But right. again, it'll, this will be counterintuitive for many, many people. But so the claim is that fitness trumps truth so fully that apprehending the truth perceptually is just not an evolutionarily stable strategy. You're going to be driven to extinction right. among creatures that are optimized for fitness. And that, that sounds a little crazy, but when, the, when you think of what fitness means, fitness means simply being optimized for survival and procreation, right? So if, as long as you're optimizing for that, it's easy to see that you successfully outcompete anything that isn't optimized for that. And there's also this additional piece, which you mentioned, which is there's clearly fitness value, i.e. survival value in throwing away information, 
that isn't related to fitness, right? So that, you know, every organism is going to have some bandwidth, you know, limits and metabolic limits and tracking every fact that's out there to track can't be a priority. And then there's this additional component, which is if the inability to make certain distinctions doesn't relate to increased fitness, evolution would not have selected for that ability to make those distinctions, right? So so you'll expect organisms to be blind to uh, certain features of reality just in principle. But there is a sense in which your thesis does bite its own tail and seems to at least potentially subvert itself in that the moment you start to say that, okay, space and time, they don't exist, they're data structures, therefore Mm -hmm. our notion of objects is a pure interface issue. It's just, it's like a trash can on the desktop. It doesn't really map onto reality as it is. You just bracketed logic and and rationality, Mm -hmm. which may be defensible, but evolution itself, the very notion of natural selection is more than just rationality. It is a causal picture. And we might say that causes and the the notion of cause and effect, right? Or the notion that causes precede their effects rather than some notion of teleology. These things are also just data structures. So that like every piece you want to put on the board to give a Darwinian account of anything does sort of fall in the bin of more space and time, more objects. And so how doesn't this thing completely subvert itself and land you in something like just a global skepticism, which says, you know, we're in, in touch with some seeming reality, which we really can't ever know anything fundamental about. Yeah, great question, both both of you. So, so the idea first that, evo- that evolution by natural selection, as we all know and love it, involves things like DNA and organisms in space and time and so forth. So how could I ever use the theory of evolution to show and claim to show that things like DNA are just data structures. They're just interface symbols. And mm-hmm. the, the reason we I can do that is because John Maynard Smith actually took the theory of evolution by natural selection and mathematized it. He realized that we could abstract away from all of the sort of the extraneous empirical assumptions of space and time and DNA and so forth. And we could look at what, what he calls just evolutionary game theory. And so that the logic of natural selection itself can be reduced to competing strategy where you make no ontological assumptions whatsoever about the world in which those strategies are playing. So, so it allows one, when someone says natural selection favors true perceptions, evolutionary game theory provides you precisely the tool you need to ask how to assess that question independent of all these other empirical assumptions that are standard in biological evolutionary theories. And so that's, that allowed me to, to do this. Now. There's another aspect to the argumentative strategy that I'm, I'm taking here, and that is that one reason that I went after the evolutionary argument was I, I'd actually announced the interface theory in my book in 1998, Visual Intelligence. And people liked the book except for the chapter on the interface theory, and they thought that was nuts. And, and I realized I wasn't going to get my colleagues to pay attention to that idea unless I talked to them in a language that they really understood. And it was that that motivated me to go after the evolutionary argument a few years later. So the reason I use evolution is not because maybe it's the best argument, it's because it's the argument that I knew my colleagues would listen to. Mm-hmm. So first I'm abstracting away from the, the whole apparatus of biological evolution to just the, the nuts and bolts of evolutionary game theory, which doesn't bring the ontological assumptions. 
And second, my attitude as a scientist toward any scientific theory is, they're just the best tools we have so far. I don't believe any scientific theories, including my own. I think belief is, is not a helpful attitude. This is the best tool we have so far. Let's look at what this tool says about the claim that natural selection favors vertical perceptions. Mm. And whatever deeper, so what, what, what that tool is saying to me is there's just no grounds for thinking that any of our perceptions of space and time and objects in any way capture the structure of whatever objective reality might be. And one, one thing that's nice about this mathematics as well is you might say, well, how in the world could you possibly show that the structure of our perceptions doesn't capture the structure of the world unless you knew already what the structure of the world is? I mean, aren't you shooting yourself in the foot there? And, and it turns out you don't have to, it's, it's really that wonderful in the mathematics that you can show that whatever the structure of the world might be, the probability is zero that that's what we're seeing. Right. Hmm. And that, that makes sense to me too. I'm still stuck on how it extends all the way to space and time. And I, and I think we shouldn't spend too much time on the evolution piece, mo mostly because I actually think you don't need it. But just from a philosophical perspective, I think it's very interesting. And I'm still curious myself kind of how far this goes, because it's clearly true up to a point, at least. So if Darwinian evolution by natural selection is a theory about objects in space and time, I mean, this, this, is, this is just a question for you about how you, how you view this. Where can you stand outside of space, time, and matter to talk about evolved perceptual systems? But more specifically, what does evolution look like, or how do you even talk about evolution outside of space-time? So what are we saying is evolving? What are we saying is surviving? What, what do evolution and survival even mean in a context outside of space and time? Or is, is that just an abstract idea that you haven't? No, that's, that's, that's the, the right question. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the power of evolutionary game theory. What John Maynard Smith was able to do was to show we could talk about abstract strategies competing, not in any particular assumption about space and time. We can get, he was able to abstract away from all the, the details of biological evolution in space and time and organisms and say the essence of, the, of Darwin's idea are these abstract strategies, and we can look at how these strategies compete so in an abstract space. So what is it that's surviving? It's an idea? It's a meme? It's a, well, what well, survives? It's, in so what you do is you have, an, you, you imagine that there are, there's a population of entities that are competing using these strategies. So they're abstract entities in an abstract space, with these, these strategies. And what you do is you, you just, there's something called the replicator equation. And what you find in the replicator equation is that the number of entities that have a good fitness strategy will start to increase. Their proportion will increase. The strategies that have a, a bad fitness strategy or, or you know, a lesser strategy. And so what you have is the proportion of the population that has various strategies goes up and down. Well, then I guess my question goes back to what, what do you mean by entity? So these are just abstract entities that, that in evolutionary game theory, you don't need to know what the entities are. They're, they're just place markers. But you're imagining they're, they're ententities outside of space and time. That's, and that's what the mathematics allows you to do. Well, it, let, let me just piggyback yeah. on this. Now you're getting tag-teamed. Um, oh, that's, that's what I was hoping <laughs> for. So uh, I apologize in advance. <laughs> 
But isn't the very notion of competition and differential success based on, parasitic on the notion of time, parasitic on the notion of causes preceding their effects? And entities is, you know, I think what Annika's fishing for there is entities seem somehow derivative of objects, at least the, the concept of an object. I mean, we're talking about something that's discrete, that's not merely a continuous reality, right? Things can be differentiated. So how are we not using the same cognitive tools that have right. got hammered into us by evolution whose process is only s selected for fitness and therefore left us epistemologically closed to the nature of reality? Absolutely. So you're right that the evolutionary, the replicator equation itself does have a time parameter, right? Or mm -hmm. at least a sequence parameter. It mm -hmm. depends on whether you do it discreetly or, or continuously. And so that's going to be built into it. Absolutely. So, by the way, as I said, I'm not committed to the truth of evolution by natural selection. I'm just using that yeah. theory itself yeah. to say that whatever the structure of the world is, the, that theory says the chance is zero yeah. that our perceptions actually have captured that structure. It leaves it open to ask, is there a deeper theory of objective reality that will give back evolution by natural selection as a special case within what I call our space-time interface? And that, that's actually what I'm hoping for, is to have a deeper theory that will have, that, that'll go beyond space and time. It, it'll go beyond time in the sense that there will be sequence, and there will be perhaps a notion of cause following effect, but not in a global space-time temporal fr framework. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It'll be completely asynchronous and so forth, and we'll get what we call causality in, in like a Minkowski space, Einstein's Minkowski space, or a general relativistic curved space-time, as a projection of a much more deep mm -hmm. theory of, of reality in which the very notion of dimension doesn't hold, in which time doesn't hold, mm -hmm. but we can show that though, that, so for, I'm thinking about a dynamics on, on abstract graphs. Um, an asynchronous dynamics, but that can be projected and simplified into what we call space-time and its causality, say in Minkowski mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. I think it's just useful as a, as a launching off point to, to every place we'll go from here to just say that at the very least, I think this evolution argument is very useful in terms of opening our eyes to something that I, I actually think we, in some sense, we already know. And and again, you know, looking at something like light is a good example where we clearly, we have not been given any tools, perceptual tools, to understand how electrons operate, how, you know, what is actually happening at a fundamental level. And, and of course, there are all these theories now from everything in string theory to many worlds trying to sort out all of these things that we see through through our science that we have absolutely no intuitions for, we have no insight into, we, we're just getting at through mm -hmm. math and logic. And, and, and so clearly we haven't evolved s systems that help us here. And so I've, I feel like we can agree to two points that we can move from here onward. And, and the first one is that we can all agree, and, and you know, scientists in general, we don't know what's fundamental, nor do we perceive the truth about the fundamental building blocks of reality. And two, and this is where I, I'd like to set this up for, for where consciousness is going to, it was about to come in. We can agree that physical science has not given us an explanation for consciousness. We have no understanding of how consciousness arises out of physical processes. And so it seems that we can at least agree that it's a legitimate question or it's a legitimate project to wonder 
if consciousness is something that's more fundamental and, and right. that we're missing that piece and that, that, right. that we've thought about it backwards all this time. Right. And that's one of the things that I think is so great about your work, and I think this is a very important project. Okay, so before we get to consciousness, which is central to our interest and where there's more controversy, at least in, in my mind, I want to anchor what you've said to a very straightforward perception so that our, our listeners can get in touch with how counterintuitive your thesis is. So when you know the three of us are in a room together, apparently, there are objects we can see. What is the status of those objects, like a glass of water, when none of us are looking at it? And what is its, is its status, given the fact that it apparently is always there for any one of us to look at. We have some kind of consensus, intersubjective language game we can play here that can reference the glass of water, you know, at will. How does that map onto your theory of non-vertical perception? Right. So I think a good way to see what I'm saying and how counterintuitive it is, is to think about, say, playing a game like Grand Theft Auto, but with a virtual reality add-on. So you're, you're, you have a headset, and you're seeing a three-dimensional world of cars and your own steering wheel and so forth. And, and it's, it's a multiplayer game, so there are people around the world that, that see the same car that you're driving and see all the other cars that you see. And in that case, there, of course, is no real car that anybody's seeing. There's just some, in this metaphor, a bunch of circuits and software and so forth. That, that's the objective reality in, in this metaphor. But all the players will agree that they see a red Corvette chasing you know, a green Mustang down the highway at you know, 70 miles. They, they all agree, not because there's literally a red Corvette chasing a green Mustang. There is some objective reality, but it's not, a, it's not Corvettes and Mustangs. That's what we each see. And, and each person with their own headset is getting, in this example, photons you know, thrown to their eyes. And they're rendering in their own mind the Corvette chasing the Mustang. So there are as many Corvettes and Mustangs as there are people playing the game because they each see the one that they render. And I might be looking at the, the, at the Corvette and I, I'm, I look away and I'm now looking at my steering wheel. I no longer see the Corvette. I've, I have garbage collected the Corvette. I'm not making that data structure anymore. Now I'm rendering a steering wheel. And now I look back over at the Corvette. Now I'm re-rendering the Corvette. So, so it looks like the Corvette was always there because you know when I look away and look back, it's it's right where I expect it to be. But in fact, there there is a reality. It's not Corvettes. It's not Mustangs. It's not steering wheels. Right. So so and now I so here's the counterintuitive claim. I'm claiming we all have a headset on. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. And we all have this space, time, physical objects, the glass of water. Those are all things that I render on the fly when I look at them, and then I garbage collect them. And, and that's part of the evolutionary argument. I garbage collect them because I'm trying to save energy and time and memory. So I render it only as I need it, and it's really just the glass I'm seeing is a representation of fitness payoffs. Those are the fitness payoffs I need to pay attention to now. Now I'm throwing that fitness payoff description away. Now I'm looking at fitness payoffs mm. over here. So it's, it's a rapid rendering of fitness payoffs in real mm -hmm. time. So he here's one of the areas where I worry that the language that you're using, the terminology you're using, may actually give a false impression of what you're saying. This is where some of my notes came in. <laughs> I don't know how, how many of these notes you, you have taken or 
or will take. But I worry that I actually think I agree with you there. But I, but there's something about the way you're saying it that I think gives a false impression okay. of what you're saying. So if you say, you know, the, the race car isn't there, you know, the moon is an example you give often. I mean, you, you also will say, which, which I think is, is more accurate and closer to what you're saying, is something exists. Yes. Something is, is there in reality that yeah. my perceptual systems are kind of turning into this, this sight of a moon. And I think it's confusing to readers and listeners when you say it doesn't exist as if the fundamental nature of reality behind whatever that moon is doesn't exist, that there's, a, that there's nothing there. Fair point. I agree um, So it seems more accurate to say we simply don't understand the deeper reality behind the moon and behind apples, and that this is something, in, in a way, like, it's less controversial. This is something we can all admit, given our, our current understanding of, of the physics. And so I, the, p- part of my, my gripe there, I think, is just with the, the language that you're using. And there's something incredibly interesting about that, that, that something is there. There's something I'm interacting with. The, the example I often like to use with you when we meet is a tree. If we plant a tree and, and leave it, it is, it is out of our conscious experience. There are all these processes that will be taking place in you know, what we call them, how we view them as water and nutrients being sucked up from the earth. And it will grow and we'll come back in a year. And all of those processes would have taken place. Whatever they are at bottom, we, we may not understand. But something is going on in the universe that we have our access to, however far from the truth it is, there is something taking place there. And so to explain it as when I leave, there's absolutely nothing there and there's no tree. And then I come back and somehow I I create this as if it's... Yeah, I think that's a very important clarification. So I, I, I agree with you completely that I'm not saying that there isn't an objective reality that would exist even if I don't look at it. There is an objective reality. It's just that the way, what I see is utterly unlike that objective reality. And, and in the, the metaphor that I was giving of virtual reality, I might see a red Corvette. The reality in that metaphor would be circuits and software that aren't red, that don't have the shape of a Corvette. They're utterly unlike a Corvette. But but when I interact with that objective reality that's there, even if I don't see the Corvette, mm-hmm. I then will see the Corvette. So that's how different. I think it's potentially confusing as an analogy only because as a user of video games, you can, tur- you can turn the video game off. It's not a, mm. a, a self-sufficient mm. world. It's not reality that, that continues on and does its, does its thing. I agree with you or on that. Or at least, it, yeah, it gives a slightly false impression. So. Right. I, I agree that the reality is continuing on regardless of what... I have life insurance. Right, right. And, and, and the reason I have life insurance is because I agree with you that there is some, some <laughs> right. reality that will continue to, to go on even if I'm, if I'm not here. Right, right. Okay, so let, let me make that point with a slightly different topspin because those concessions seem to bring us back to the standard consensus view of science in some way. So, that, right. so there, there's this appearance-reality distinction. There's our sensory experience, which is our interface, which you know, everyone agrees does not put us in direct contact with the thing in itself or underlying reality. But you're conceding that there is an underlying reality, and there must be some lawful mapping between what we see on the interface and that underlying reality, which actually renders our mutual perceptions of things like trees and glasses and cars predictable, where we can both agree that if we go to look for the same object, each one of us is likely to independently find it. 
whatever the relationship is between that interface data structure and reality itself. So there's there has to be some kind of isomorphism between our virtual reality experience and reality itself, even though we don't have, by virtue of evolution, all of the right conceptual tools so as to say what it is. There is going to be a mapping between objective reality and and our perceptions. And that mapping will be as complicated or more complicated as the mapping between all the circuits and software in the virtual reality machine and the actual like Grand Theft Auto world that I that I perceive. And if if you think about it, there's gonna be hundreds of megabytes of software, all these complicated circuits. All I'm seeing is is simple cars and so forth. So there's gonna be in computer science, there are all these virtual machines that you create, many, many levels of virtual machines between what you see in, in the Grand Theft Auto game and the actual objective reality in this metaphor that's going on there. And so I'm saying that, that the idea that, that the reality is going to be isomorphic to space-time is too simplistic, right? It's, it, there's gonna be some, I agree that there's gonna be some systematic mapping is gonna be quite complicated. So another way to put it is this, if I said to you, I want you to use the language of what you can see in your interface in the virtual reality. So the pixels that you can see, the colors and pixels, that's the only language you can use. And I want you to tell me how this virtual world works. You can't do it because the language of pixels is an inadequate set of predicates to actually describe that world. And I'm, I'm making the very strong claim that whatever objective reality is, the language of space and time and physical objects in space and time is simply the wrong language. Hmm. There is a systematic mapping, right. but, but the language of objects in space and time could not possibly frame a true description yeah. of that objective reality. That's the strong claim. So it's, it's yeah. similar to, you know, J.B.S. Haldane, the famous physiologist, gave us a, an aphorism that almost contains this thesis in seed form, which is not only is reality stranger than we suppose, it's stranger than we can suppose. By giving a deflationary account of our notion of space and time, you are saying, whatever this mapping is between appearance and reality, we are so ill-equipped to talk about it based on you know, this interface analogy that it is, on some level, far stranger and far more foreign to the way in which we're thinking about things than anyone has so it's, it's, it's yeah so your claim isn't actually so i'm just trying to get at what is truly novel about your claim one thing that's novel is the expectation that evolution has selected for some approximation to what is true seems false right right so fitness trumps truth and as a result whatever this mapping is to underline reality, it's we are in a far greater state of ignorance about it than most people expect. That that's right. So we should absolutely you you've nailed it on the head. And I would say this that it's the relationship between a visualization tool and whatever it is that we're visualizing, right? So mm -hmm. so there's going to be this objective reality that's out there, mm -hmm. and we evolution just gave us this very very dumbed down species specific visualization tool. The very language of that tool is probably, I mean, the whole point of a visualization tool is to hide mm -hmm. the complexity of the objective reality and just give you, you know, a dumbed down tool that you can use. And so the very language of space and time and objects is just the wrong language for whatever the thing is. Just like I would say, though, that, 
you know, as, as far as I, I understand, most up to this point, I, I know we're going to talk about consciousness soon and then we'll get into a different realm. But up, up to this point, everything that you've just said, I think most physicists would agree with and is part of the conversation in quantum mechanics right now. And many physicists are, are talking about this problem of space-time and of space and time independently as well clearly not being the final answer to what is fundamental. And, and everything we see out of quantum mechanics gives us a, a, a real philosophical problem similar to the one you're describing, which is it seems that the fundamental nature of the universe, what the universe is actually made of, is not anything like what we experience it all the way to the point of space and time. That, that's right. And so it's really interesting because if you look at our biggest scientific theories in physics, general relativity and, and also special relativity are about space-time, right? Space-time is assumed to be an objective reality and a fundamental one. In quantum field theory as well, the fields are defined over space-time. And, and so physics as uh, Nima Arkani Hamed has, has put mm -hmm. it, and mm -hmm. he's a professor at the Institute for Advanced Study at, at Princeton. He's pointed out that for the last few centuries, physics has been about what happens in space-time. But now they're realizing that to get general relativity and the standard model of physics to play well together, they're going to have to let go of space-time. Mm -hmm. It cannot be fundamental. And, and he's not worried about it. And in fact, he says most of his colleagues agree right. that space-time is doomed, yes. and there's going to be something deeper. And that's wonderful because we're about to learn something new. There's a deeper framework for us to be thinking about physics, and space-time will have to be emergent from that deeper, mm -hmm. deeper framework. I actually I watched a lecture of his recently, and I, I wrote down this short quote. He, he says, all these things are converging on some completely new formulation of standard physics where space-time and quantum mechanics are not our inputs, but our outputs. And I thought that was, that was very well said. But, but that, so, so as, as far as I you know, understand where, where physics is at at this point, I think all of these physicists would, would agree with you up until this point. And I think now we can probably cross over. <laughs> Although, into, although I, yeah, I would just point yeah, out sorry. that they might agree for different reasons, right? They're not yes, using absolutely. But the there, same but there, evolutionary nothing, logic. To... But that there's nothing intrinsic in what Don is saying about how false our view of the fundamental nature of reality right. is. Right. That, it, that it is that, that, it, that you can actually take it all the way to space-time and that we're probably wrong in all of those assumptions about what we think. I agree, and universe. I think it's, it's really interesting that the pillars of science are all saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. Evolution by natural selection is saying mm -hmm. you need to let go of space-time. And then the physicists trying to get general relativity and quantum field theory to play, right, they're saying you have to let go of space-time. Yeah. When our best science is saying that, that's, it's time for an interesting revolution. That's mm -hmm. going to be fun. I mean, mm -hmm. it's going to be very exciting yeah. to see what, what happens when we go behind space-time. It's so counterintuitive, though, right? We, we've just assumed that I mean, our, 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 our story is space-time came into existence 13.8 billion years ago at the Big Bang. It was the fundamental reality. We're saying there's, there's a deeper story. Right. That story is only true up to a point. There's a much, much deeper story, and that's more like an mm. interface story. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the projection of a much deeper story we're going to have to find. And that is 
tremendously fun. Yeah, well, so uh, now we're now going to move on to consciousness, which will be interesting. I just, I guess, so I want to flag my lingering concern that your rationale, if taken in deadly earnest, may still kick open the door to epistemological skepticism for me, at least, because they, like mm. I, I think, you know, if once space and time are dispensed with causality and kind of an evolutionary rationale does i mean this is this is kind of the plantinga argument you referred to it's just once you start pulling hard at those threads i'm not sure how much the the fabric of epistemology can be defended so i, I agree with you sam in in, yeah. in the following sense i i think that it might actually go that way just on the evolutionary arguments alone mm -hmm. so what i'm going to want to do is to whatever the deeper theory of reality that i propose it needs to be such that it will not fall into the epistemological problems that you're raising. So the, the deeper theory needs to avoid those epistemological problems and show why that deeper theory looks like evolution by natural selection when we project it into our space-time interface. Right. In other words, so that these kinds of problems might arise because evolution by natural selection itself is not the deepest theory. It's just an interface version of a deeper theory. Right. Okay. So, yeah, so on this this topic of causality and time and whether this project even makes sense, which as I know is a place you and I have gotten to before in our conversations, when you say things like the, the brain and neurons are not the source of causal powers and that we need to find another source, my question is why would you assume that there are causal powers at all in the fundamental nature of reality? So it's not clear to my, it's not clear to me why we include causal powers as part of a fundamental reality if space-time doesn't exist. Okay. I don't quite see how there is causality without time, at least in the way that we typically think about mm. it. I mean just to take a, an example which is kind of standard physics although often neglected, the notion of a block universe, right? The notion that right. you know the, the future exists just as much as the present as as the past. And so that there really are no events. Mm -hmm. There's just a single datum, which is the entire cosmos, right? And its so, connections. So, right? yeah. so causality on, under that construal is really an illusion. That's right. And and without endorsing the block universe view, I would say that causality in space and time is a fiction. Mm -hmm. It's a useful fiction that we've evolved in our interface. That, but that strictly speaking, causality in space and time is, is not, because space and time is not the fundamental reality, the appearance of causality, like my hand pushing this glass and moving it, it gives the appearance that my, my hand has causal powers and is causing the glass to move. But, but in fact, that's, that's just a useful fiction. It's like if I drag an icon on my desktop to the trash can and delete the file. It looks like the movement of the icon on the desktop to the trash can caused the file to be deleted. Well, for the casual user, that's a perfectly harmless fiction to believe. Hmm. Uh, if you move the icon to the trash can, it causes the file to be It's perfectly harmless. But for the user, for the guy who actually wants to build the software interface for this, go under the hood, that fiction has to be let go. So, so I'm claiming that, that within space and time, all the appearance of causality is a fiction. Now, in terms of the deeper theory, because I mean, you were asking in a deeper theory, what about causality well, there? Well, my, my argument is that causality is part of the illusion of time. Assuming time is some sort of illusion and, and time is not fundamental, 
at least as far as we usually talk about. I mean, I can think mm -hmm. of this is a, another conversation of how we can almost redefine causality, which right. in my view, I, I have. I think there's a way to talk about different things being connected. But in right. terms of the way we, our definition of causality and how we use it, it is dependent on time. It is a part of things that, that play out in time. You need something Right. Uh, you need something to happen in the past to cause something to happen in the future. It, it, it's this, it is this direct relationship in time. And so I don't even know how yeah. you would talk about causality without time. It, it, it needs time for its own definition. So I think if we're redefining causality, which I think is kosher, actually, I think that's something we can talk about. I'm not, I'm, I've never been clear whether that is what you mean. Are we kind of redefining what causality is and is it more like connections between things rather than one thing happens and it then uh, you know another thing happens in response yeah I, I would also add another aspect here which is that the notion of possibility mm -hmm. may be spurious right so that it may in fact be that nothing is is ever possible there's only what is actual Right there's only what mm -hmm. happens, right. mm -hmm. and our sense that something else might have happened in any circumstance that just might be a again part of this user yeah. in interface that has seemed useful because it it is useful to try like when we're apparently making decisions between two possibilities and we need to model counterfactuals right, right. counterfactual right. thinking is incredibly useful, and yet what if it is simply the case as it you know as it would be in a block universe that there's just, you know, the novel's already written and you're on page 75, but page right. 168 exists already in some sense. And I, I also, I don't think you need the block universe though, because I think there's- No, a, that's there's, just one way of getting at the uh, Yeah, I mean, it's point. a good visualization, but I think m most physicists will have some argument about it being described that way. But I think the, the analogy holds. And I, I was just reading Carlo Rovelli's book on, on time, and he, he makes this point as well that that at a certain level there is no difference between past and future and and essentially i mean his, his thesis in the book is that time is an illusion it is it is not something um so, so sorry i go yeah, ahead so yeah i think that that we'll need a notion of causality that's outside of space time that is not going to be dependent on time it'll be more like relationship as, as you talked about okay and and in terms of the counterfactuals and possibilities, I, th I think we'll want to have a conversation about probability and how we interpret probabilities in, in scientific theories. Whether there, I mean, so there are probabilities that, that are epistemic in the sense that maybe there's a deterministic reality out there hmm. and I just don't know enough about it. So, so, if it, so the probabilities are subjective. It's my, my right. lack of knowledge. There, there's frequency, but our sense of probability may be. Mm -hmm. spurious. Mm -hmm. Th that's right. But then if, if there are probabilities in which no matter how much my knowledge increases, the probability will not disappear. And so we often call those in science objective chance. Hmm. And I think we want to have a conversation about how we think about probabilities and objective chance. It will, it will actually take us into the question about free will and so forth. My, my version of, of, of notions of free will versus determinism. So, so I think that that's going to be an interesting conversation. So, so I, I agree that we need a notion of causality that transcends time, and I, I'm proposing one. By the way, it's interesting, why, I know why, you... Yeah, go, go ahead, sorry. You, you talk with Judea Pearl, and mm -hmm. you know, he, he's got, of course, these directed acyclic graphs 
models of, of causal reasoning, which are brilliant, and they've actually given us a mathematical science for the first time of, of causal reasoning. But when, you, you know, in his book, Pearl doesn't define causality. He refuses to, to define mm-hmm. the notion of causality. In, in some sense, what we're facing here is that every scientific theory, and this is, this is a really important idea, I think, mm-hmm. no scientific theory is a theory of everything. There's no such thing. Every scientific theory makes certain assumptions. We call them the, the premises or the assumptions of the theory. And only if you grant the theory those assumptions can it go and explain everything else. Yep. And, and so we're going to have in every scientific theory certain primitives that are unexplained. They, 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 they are the miracles vis-a-vis that theory. Now, you may say, well, I can get you a deeper theory for which those assumptions come out as consequences, but you will have a deeper set of assumptions. Yeah, there's going to be an axiom somewhere at the bottom. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, that's a humbling recognition for a scientist to realize that we will never have a theory of everything. We will always have a miracle or a few miracles. We want to keep them as few as possible. I don't like that you call them miracles. I would like, the, <laughs> like I, to have the record show. <laughs> well, I, I understand that. But, but I, we call them assumptions. Why, why but, not call them axioms? Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, well, because I, I want to really make uh, the point. It's another place where I think people might actually be confused about what you mean, which is why right. I'm... It's, sure. I'm glad that <laughs> you're pushing I'm trying back. to protect you. <laughs> right. So I'll, I'll just say that there are things that the theory cannot explain. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and there will always be things that mm-hmm. every scientific theory cannot explain, and it's a principal problem. So, the interesting thing will be, in a deeper theory, will we have something that we that's like a causal notion that will be a primitive of the theory, and it may not be de- dependent on time, but it'll be it, it, there will be primitives, and an explanation will stop. I get so. So, my question, my issue, really is why use the word causality? When you're speaking in more fundamental terms, so why not say something like connections, relationships to me seem much more, much closer analogies. And so to say what we view as causality is in fact something more like a connection or a relationship at I'm a more fundamental on board. level. Okay. I, I agree with you completely. Okay. I think a deeper mm-hmm. theory, we may okay. think that the, the term causality is just not a, a very useful term anymore. Right. It, was, it was useful in space and time and connection or influence is a better term mm-hmm. you know, at mm-hmm. a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on to consciousness and free will and other dangerous topics. Yes. What, in your view, is the connection between consciousness and the base layer of reality? Right. So this is now a leap. The work that I've done on evolution of natural selection not showing us the truth just says that whatever we're seeing is an interface to whatever objective reality might be. But it doesn't, by itself, give any clue to what that other objective reality might be. Mm-hmm. So the, the stuff I'm going to talk about now does not follow from my theorem with, with Chaitan or the, the simulations. It doesn't follow at all. Mm-hmm. This is a leap. Mm-hmm. And, and the leap I'm taking is motivated by the desire to try to understand a solution to the hard problem mm-hmm. of consciousness. The hard problem is something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. I've had David Chalmers and Thomas Messinger, Anil Seth. So many people will be familiar with it, but in brief, the problem as sketched by Chalmers and many others is that, depending on intuitions divide here, but there is a seemingly, to many of us, insurmountable problem in getting from mere complexity that is unconscious, you know, neurons for whom there is nothing that it's like to be, the lights are not on, 
yet you wire them up in some functional arrangement, and by virtue of their information processing or any other property, suddenly the lights come on and there's something that, that it's like to be that system. That always seems like the statement of a miracle, whatever the answer is. Let's say it is just 40 hertz processing in a system of 10,000 units. Let's just say that's a, a fact about the way the universe is. It doesn't seem like an explanatory one, right? So you, like many of us, see the hard problem as genuinely hard, and now we're talking about how you are bringing consciousness into your picture of, of things. And maybe I'll just say a little bit about that hard problem and my thoughts on it yeah. more generally, and that is that some people will say, well, just get over it. You know, it's a hard problem. It's not really a hard problem. Just You just need to you know, come to terms with it. And, and my attitude is this. As a scientist, I want a mathematically precise theory. If you claim that certain patterns of neural activity are my experiences of the taste of vanilla, then I want a, sci a mathematically precise theory that says precisely which class of neural activity is the taste of vanilla and principled reasons why it could not be the taste of chocolate. Now, maybe it's a hard problem or not, but we have not solved that problem. Hmm. And as a scientist, I'm not happy with hand waves that say somehow neural activity is my taste of chocolate. That's not a scientific theory. It's not even in, it's not in a game playing theory. It's, it's not in the game at all. Right. So I want, so whether you want to say it's hard or not, there isn't anything on the table that I, as a scientist, find respectable. Mm -hmm. Same thing is true for, you know, orchestrated collapse of microtubule states in, 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 in neurons. Right. Nice general idea. What is the precise orchestrated collapse of microtubules that is the taste of chocolate? Yes, and why must Hammeroff and Penrose. Yeah, the Hammeroff yeah. and Penrose. Again, whether the problem is hard or not, the fact is there is no mathematically precise statement for even one conscious experience in any of the ideas that are being proposed. Well, and I would argue that if you let, if you just you know, take that advice and let go of the hard problem, the truth is you're just, you're starting with an assumption either way. So, so mm -hmm. the letting go of the hard problem just means, okay, I will assume that something that matter does causes consciousness to arise. To me, the, that's not any more kosher than assuming that consciousness is everywhere to begin with. There's no really good reason for taking one assumption over the other. So e either way, they're, they're asking you to just make an assumption about well, how consciousness relates to matter. Absolutely. And if my colleagues, I mean, of course, these are all my good friends and so forth. So, mm -hmm. But if, if yeah. my colleagues actually had a mathematically precise theory that says, these are the patterns of neural activity that must be the taste of chocolate, and these are the principal reasons, Great. Mm -hmm. I mean, now we're doing science, and I'd be, I'd be quite happy. And, and if I was convinced that they had a story, I probably wouldn't be going where I'm going with, with consciousness. But it's, it's the utter failure to give me as a scientist something that I, I recognize as a real scientific theory that starts with unconscious ingredients like neural activity or microtubule quantum states and gives me back consciousness as the output. There's nothing that I recognize as science here yet. Yeah. And, and given that, and, and it's also from my point of view, a matter of search strategy. 99% of my colleagues are assuming that we'll start with unconscious ingredients and boot up consciousness. It's not working so far. Right. And I figure, well, that's a bad search strategy for all of us to be doing that. At least some of us should be looking somewhere else. And so yeah. it's in that spirit yeah. that I'm saying, well, I'm probably, probably wrong, but let's try a theory in which consciousness is fundamental and try to boot up space and time and physical objects as just a user interface 
description that we're using as a way to you know, interact with you know, a bunch of consciousnesses out there that would otherwise be overwhelming. And we'll see if it works. Hey, you know, mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But the idea is to be absolutely precise, get something mathematical on the table so we can figure out what's wrong with it. And so in that spirit, I'm trying to solve the hard problem of consciousness in the opposite direction from my colleagues. All of my colleagues, most of my colleagues assume that we will start with unconscious ingredients and boot up consciousness. And more power to them. If they can do it, great. But nothing's on the table yet. And so I'm saying, let's get a mathematically precise theory of consciousness and then try to figure out a theory in which we have a dynamics of consciousness, which is going to be a tall order. And then, so the idea would be there's this vast social network of interacting consciousnesses or a vast field of interacting consciousnesses. And what we call space and time is just a visualization tool that certain consciousnesses use as a way of taming all this complexity that would otherwise be overwhelming. So we have big data of all this social interaction of these consciousnesses. It's overwhelming. We always deal with, with overwhelming you know, social media data by doing visualization tools. And that's what evolution gave us, is a space-time visualization tool. And so the proof of the pudding will be in the science that we can do. Can we give a mathematically precise theory of consciousness from first principles? Can we propose a, a dynamics of it? And can we propose how that dynamics gets projected into our space-time interface? And here's the, the bottom line. If that dynamics of consciousness, when it projects into our interface, is to be taken seriously, it better give us back evolution by natural selection, general relativity, string theory, or generalizations of these theories. Mm -hmm. So from my point of view, all of these scientific theories are wonderful tools, but they've only been science of our interface, not science of objective reality. So the hope would be we have this theory of, of consciousnesses and their interaction, mathematically precise. It projects into our space-time interface, and it must give us back the science that we know and love today. If it can't do that, it's wrong. So this will be an empirically constrained approach. I can't help but notice you're not saying conscious agents is, is the term you use in your book, and you're saying consciousnesses in this context. And I'm wondering if, if you've actually made a change or, or if it's because I'm here and you know, you know I will take issue with, with the term agents, which you know, is something we can get to. But I'm curious if, if you've changed your, your point of view on that term. Well, yeah, I think we, we should discuss the notion of agency yeah. and, and the notion of free will here, because it, it's it's, it's going to have to do with how we think about probabilities. These are probabilities that cannot be reduced by further knowledge. But do you, do you still use that term? Is that how you... I still have that as my, as my technical as, term. As, as these, if I could like, find a better term, I would, I would right. find it. Because agency does bring baggage. And I'm trying, just like panpsychism brings baggage. And yeah. I, I, mm -hmm. I don't have a better term yet, so I would be happy to. But, mm -hmm. but given that the term agency is there, I think it does prompt us to talk about notions of free will and probability and so forth that are that are yeah. important discussions. And when you say consciousnesses, I mean just to make sure I, I have your, your terminology straight. Uh, is that is that the same for you as conscious agents? Sure. You're, you're talking about kind of the, the building blocks of of consciousness as as a fundamental. Th that's right. So that they, they could all together form a very complex dynamical system which could be viewed as as a real complex field. Right. But the the mathematics that I've been developing with my with my colleagues mm -hmm remarkably gives us analytical tools to analyze it at all levels from mm -hmm. very, very trivial conscious agents to the entire big 
field of conscious agents. And it's the same formalism that we get to use at all levels of analysis. So Mm -hmm. we do seem to be coming on an analytic framework that would allow us to view consciousness as a field, Mm -hmm. but also to quantify it as individual interacting conscious agents or conscious units. Is that analogous to other fields that the study of physics deals with? I mean, in the sense that there are photons and graviton, you know, as talking about at one point or one one part of a, a gravitational field, do you, do you think of it in in an, an analogous way, or, or is that in a completely different realm than somewhat? It so of course the 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 standard fields in physics are defined over space time, so the quantum fields are defined over space time, and I'm just saying that space time is not a fundamental reality; right. it's just emergent. So these conscious agents exist outside of space time, right? To the, you know, in fact, to the contrary, they are the authors of space-time. Space-time is just, for some conscious agents, not most, they use space-time as, as a user interface. Probably most don't use space-time, they use something else. Mm-hmm. So, but they're a field, it, it's probably, it's a field in the sense that it's an infinite number of interacting parts that are a, a coherent whole, but also can be analyzed locally in, in terms of their local dynamics and the local dynamics feeds to the whole, but the whole also, there's a top-down and bottom-up. But again, it's all mathematically precise. So that's the... There is the, a the way point. in which, though, these fields that we know of are giving us trouble in terms of space-time. So yeah. I, I do sometimes wonder, and I, and I wonder if you, you've gone down this path, whether the fundamental nature of reality is not something that can be t- described as one thing, but but as as a number of fields, because even the fields that that we know are are there and that we can measure to some degree. At bottom, we don't we don't actually understand what they are fundamentally, and and seem to have an explanation deeper than than space time. And so, if consciousness were a field, we could think of it kind of a, a, on the same level. We have these theories for other fields that exist in space time, but. There's still some way in which scientists would say we we don't actually understand the fundamental nature of, of those things, and they probably can be described, or we need to find an explanation for them outside of space time. And so, right? How 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 would a conscious consciousness as a field necessarily be different? Well, so it would be different in the following sense that that the fields, like in quantum field theory are defined over a continuous space-time. And part of the problem is that the continuous space-time contradicts the, you know, the discreteness that you seem to need in, in quantum mechanics. So the, the, the continuous nature of, of Einstein's space-times and general relativity and, and also special relativity, that also seems to you know, contradict some mm-hmm. basic principles like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in, in, in quantum physics. And so that could be true of consciousness as well, though. I mean, we we are witnessing, we're having an experience of consciousness in space-time in a way that you're suggesting actually originates from, outside of, from something. Yeah, That's right, outside of space-time. Mm-hmm. So I use the, the term field not, not in the technical sense that, uh, okay. you know, like quantum field theory where it's something that's, it's a, a field that's defined over a continuous space-time. It's, it's more a field in the sense that these are outside of space and time, but that there's there is something about the whole that's that that is coherent and you can look at the individual parts as expressions of this whole dynamics but the parts themselves turn out to be very very interesting in terms of analyzing the whole so so there is an analysis and synthesis aspect to this whole thing 
And it's in that sense, mm -hmm. a more loose sense, not fields in the quantum field sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I just want to traverse some of this ground again because I'm I'm imagining that listeners are fairly confused about what's being claimed here. So first, to, to differentiate the first part of our conversation about fitness and the, the interface theory of perception and you know, the role of evolution from what we're now doing with consciousness, it seems to me there's a straightforward reason why there's no direct link between them because whatever selection story you want to tell about you know selecting for you know conscious agents would apply equally well to zombie agents right i mean the selection right. works in either case right so consciousness has to be smuggled in based on some other principle apart from natural selection right so what what are you actually claiming here you, you said you you're you're not a friend of uh, or a fan of panpsychism now pan panpsychism to remind people, is this theory that it starts with the material world. It acknowledges that there is this hard problem of how you conceive of the emergence of consciousness based on physical events that are at bottom unconscious. And I mean, there are many variants of panpsychism. Some take information processing as their kind of brute fact. And so a certain level of information processing, even down to a single bit, may be the source of consciousness, or it could just be that consciousness is an intrinsic property of matter itself, so that you know electrons, whatever they're doing, are humming with some interior dimension of subjectivity. Some versions of panpsychism have their, their adherence at this point in science, but it is still a fringe theory and strikes people as somehow either counterintuitive or, or gratuitous just to imagine that you know, there's consciousness and everything, but it's it, it's motivated as you're motivated to just acknowledge up front that the thing we are actually totally certain of, the fact that the lights are on for us, that this is the fact of consciousness, though we may be confused about everything, this is the one thing that can't be an illusion, right? And so you have to find some place for it in your scientific worldview, and panpsychism is, is an attempt to do that. So you are not a panpsychist because you are not starting with the material world as our foundation and then trying to push consciousness all the way down. But right. it seems to me that what you're doing is similar to panpsychism in that you are pushing consciousness into the interface or behind the data structures of the interface in ways that are similar to what the panpsychist is doing. You're like so track right. this for me. If I look at a glass of water and I'm in a universe where there really are just, on, on your account, conscious agents being you know, piped to me in one way or another through my interface, what are you saying about consciousness with respect to the glass of water that is a data structure that I'm in touch with? Right. So there's a little explaining a lot to do to, to get to the glass of water. Great. With panpsychism, I think that the, the reason I'm not a panpsychist and I disagree is that I think that there, there's two things. One is that I think it's got too restrictive an idea about how what we call the physical world will be related to the consciousnesses. It's very restrictive in the sense that it says, so electrons, which are these physical things, will have a unit of consciousness in them. And 
when protons and neutrons get together, their consciousnesses will combine to be the, the consciousness of the hydrogen and, and, and so forth. And I, I think it's, it's the right kind of idea, but it's just too restrictive. Why, why should we, we shouldn't be that restricted by our interface. Our interface ideas are constraining the solution set too much. If we think about space and time just as a user interface, a visualization tool to a very, very rich realm of consciousnesses outside, then we won't be constrained to think about little consciousnesses trapped inside little electrons in our interface. So, I, so the, the, my fundamental problem with panpsychism is, is way too restrictive. We need to blow open the doors to open to other scientific theories that I think are going to be far more flexible and, and able to account for what's going on. That's the first problem. Second problem is that panpsychism has never been turned into a scientific theory. There is no mathematics. There's, there's, for me as a scientist, there's nothing, there's nothing there. There's no beef. It's, it's a nice philosophical idea. I would love for someone to turn it into a scientific theory, but as a scientist, there's nothing on the table for me. Now, so, the, so now to get to the glass of water, I think we can get there by a couple steps. This idea that my interface is giving me a portal into these consciousnesses sounds strange at first, but, but it's not in the following sense. Think about looking at your own face in the mirror. What you literally see is just the skin, hair, and eyes. But you know firsthand that well, what you... Less and less hair, I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and grayer and grayer hair, too. That's right. And more wrinkles on the face. But what, what we, you don't see firsthand, but you... But, I'm sorry, what you don't see in the mirror, but what you know firsthand is there, is the whole world of your conscious experiences, your hopes, your desires, your love of music, you know, the colors that you're seeing, the headache that you might have, that huge world of conscious experiences, you know firsthand is there. And all you see in the mirror is, by, by contrast, is trivial. It's, it's absolutely trivial what you see in the mirror. The way I think about that is the face that I see when I look at you is a portal. It's, it, the face I, I see is my icon. It's something I create. It's not, it's not literally your consciousness. It's just my icon. But my icon, like when I see Sam's face, I'm, you know, I'm creating the face that I see, but I, I believe that behind my icon, there is a genuine, rich world of consciousness that's interacting with my consciousness. I'm interacting with that consciousness. So there's a genuine, but, but, but small portal. I mean, there's the whole rich realm of, you know, your conscious experiences that, that I'm not directly aware of. When I look at my cat, my portal is dimmer, but I think that I'm dealing with a consciousness, and it really likes certain kinds of cat food and it doesn't like others, and, but it's dimmer. When I see an ant, my interface has really sort of started to give up. And when I see things that I call like rocks or E. coli or protons and neutrons, my interface has completely given up. But that's no surprise. That's the point of an interface. An interface is there to, you know, it's, it's going to ignore most of the reality and at some point, it's just going to give up. And so, so you would say that rock is still representing some form of consciousness. It's my symbol that I get in my interface when I interact with consciousnesses. Right. But it's, but it's such a dumb symbol because my interface yeah. is giving up. But it, but it is a symbol of some, some form of consciousness. That's right. right. So, so it's a symbol of my interaction with other consciousnesses, which is different than saying that the rock itself is it's conscious, conscious right. or has consciousness inside of it somehow. Well, right? I would, I would, I mean, I, my belief in it may be contaminating how I'm interpreting what you're saying, right. but in the same sense that, I mean, if you, if you were looking at someone with locked-in syndrome, 
there's still some sense in which you you have a portal, but you you don't really. And so I think in some sense, those are analogous under under Mm. your theory. So that you actually just flip the logic, though, because locked in syndrome is something that doesn't seem conscious, but we know is. Yeah, no, I'm saying I'm actually saying that about the rock. So I'm saying that by 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 his theory, the way I, I read his theory, there is consciousness that rock is representing consciousness in some sense. You just have no access to the type of consciousness that that is there or or what what that experience right. is. But I would all but right. I but I think there's there's a little bit of a problem then in saying there you know you can say there's no rock there in the same way that you can say there's no there's no human being here. There there's conscious experience and you're getting your like simulation style presentation of of what this conscious experience is but i would say the rock then is analogous in the sense that as much as there's consciousness here in my body there is consciousness there in that rock meaning that this thing you're that you're experiencing through your perceptions represents a form of consciousness in both cases right so that would force me to actually be very careful about saying consciousness is in your body so yes exactly right, right, so i right, think so right. that but i think that's that's the thing you you tend to not get into because the conversation doesn't go there but you do get asked whether there's consciousness in the rock and i actually think it's the same question and so that's right so strictly speaking you're right there's yeah. not consciousness in the body the body itself i mean when i see annika's body i'm literally just seeing an interface description that i make i'm not actually seeing the true consciousness of annika and i'm only getting a portal into the the consciousness of Attica. So strictly right. speaking, body your the body that I'm perceiving is is does not in some sense have consciousness inside of it. It's my portal to right. the consciousness. Right. It so, seems it seems to me that this is essentially like panpsychism. It's just panpsychism for a virtual reality. That's it, what I keep accusing him of. And you do inherit many of the problems of panpsychism in that one, you seem to be pushing consciousness into places where at a minimum, we don't know it to be, mm-hmm. right? Like in the case of rocks or glasses of water, you inherit the same combination problem that panpsychism does. So but the, to remind people what this is, so if you know, every electron is conscious and, every, and you know, higher structures like neurons are conscious and these things can combine into systems that form some kind of global consciousness with respect to them, like a human brain, you have this question of, whether the, all of the parts remain independently conscious as they summate into higher consciousnesses, and then you can posit that there are higher consciousnesses still, like all of the people who are trying to figure out their tax returns on tax day. Do all of those efforts represent some kind of higher level computation that is its own independent point of view on the cosmos? You do inherit that, again, Yes. In this virtual space, you've you've got you know these minor conscious agents that summate into something you know, really infinitely on your account. Absolutely. So, I do have the the issue of combination, both of individual experiences and of subjects. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is we do have a mathematically precise theory of conscious agents. So it's it's I can describe it at some point if you want, but it's it's mathematically precise. And and so the combination problem we can actually take it as a technical problem. And we are studying it as a technical problem. We can ask, when we have two separate conscious agents, when they interact, under what conditions does the pair or the system satisfy the definition of a conscious agent? 
because that's our technical definition of when they combine. If a system of interacting separate conscious agents together satisfy the definition of a conscious agent, then they have combined. And so we can, we've actually turned the combination problem, which in panpsychism has just been a problem, it's been a philosophical problem. For us, it's now a technical mathematical problem. We, we actually have a mathematically precise definition of when agents combine. And now it's a matter for us to actually prove theorems and, and look at all the different possible ways that they can actually combine. And it's looking quite, quite interesting. I'm working with some mathematicians on this that are going to be bringing in category theory and topoi theory and so forth to start to explore all the ways that agents can combine. So for us, it's not a philosophical showstopper. It's now turned into a nice technical mathematical problem that we're, we're working the problem now. And did, we have some did solutions. the problem arise as a mathematical problem, or did it did it get fed in through the philosophical problem? Because my my view is is that it's actually kind of a false problem based on an illusion. Well, um, what's a false problem? So, a combination problem? Yeah, and so I, I'm curious. I, I don't see how a combination problem would arise just based on the math, because mm -hmm. what what is it? Are you talking about combining? I, I, I just it, it seems it's it seems suspicious to me. <laughs> well, well, it, <laughs> it seems like it must have come in from the philosophy, and that there somehow you're needing the math to explain a problem we see on the outside that that I'm not sure exists intrinsically. I, I wasn't smart enough to actually build it into the system up up front. <laughs> I, I I was starting from very very simple beginnings on the the theory of conscious agents. So my my assumption up front was that I, I wanted to have the simplest structure that I thought might be capable of explaining all aspects of consciousness. And so all I've got is a conscious agent has a set of conscious experiences. I call it SpaceX experiences. It has a set of actions that it can take to affect the experiences of other agents. And it has a decision process. Given the experience, this is the action I will take. That's pretty much it. It's pretty trivial. Yes. And what I found was, as I was playing with, so I wrote that down as mathematics. I mean, for mathematicians, the, yeah. the X, the space of conscious experiences and space of actions are measurable spaces, and the, the choice function is a Markovian kernel. Right. It's all Markovian kernels. Except and, you're, cho you're choosing what each element represents in terms of the, the language you give to it. Absolutely. And uh, as you know, but other, other people don't know, I, I have made an attempt, because I'm so supportive of what you're doing and, right, and right. actually think you're onto something, but I think the terminology is, is off here and misleading. Mm -hmm. I've given you alternatives <laughs> for all of for, these for all terms, those terms, and I, yeah. I'm sure you haven't accepted any any of them yet. But I do think that this is where it gets slightly confusing because the the language you use right. to describe the math right. can really change the interpretation you have Ag agreed of the math. And I and I wonder if this now I'm just having this thought now, but if if combination is one of those things. So in the same way that mm. causality means something in space time, which we which makes is more analogous to relationship or something like that outside of space-time. Combination, I think, is, is also a highly misleading term. Well, the combination problem is motivated by the hard problem but that's well. But that's what so, I'm saying. That's a philosophical problem. But he's saying it arose out of the math. And so I'm right. wondering what arose out of the math that, that caused right. you to call it a combination problem. Right. So I was, one day I was playing with the mathematics. So I have this mathematical definition of conscious agent. And I was looking at a system of two interacting conscious agents, and I wrote down a description of the pair. And when I looked at the description, I realized, oh, wow, my description of the pair also is, is a conscious same. agent. Is the same as the and, description. And that's when it sort of hit me. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. I've just now shown that the dynamical system of conscious agents 
is another conscious agent. That's what my mathematics is telling me. So I became a student of the math on this. I, I hadn't actually planned mm -hmm, ahead, mm -hmm, but the mm -hmm. math was now tutoring me. And then some other mathematicians came along and said, well, Don, you just found one way, but there are countless ways. You need to, you, you got to learn some more math, Don. There's countless ways that you could have these conscious agents interacting, and there'll be countless ways that they will form and, and satisfy the definition of a conscious agent. Like, for example, one way is that the long-term behavior of two agents, what we call the asymptotic behavior, could actually be the foundation for a higher level agent that in some sense is working at a quote-unquote different time scale than lower. So there's going to be countless ways that the math is going to lead us into seeing how agents combine to create new agents. But, but I mean, the point that you, you raised, Sam, was that, that suggests there could be agents above us as well as agents below us. The, 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 the math has come back to me and said, yeah, that's, that's what the math is going to be saying, that there are agents above and, and below. Okay, so let, let me again just revisit what is counterintuitive about panpsychism and hold your theory accountable to it, because it sure. there does seem to be a kind of homology here. Well, first, with respect to the math, you must be importing consciousness into it as a founding assumption. Your ass assertion that conscious agents are conscious is a, an assumption. That's a, the, the consciousness isn't falling out of the math. Exactly. Okay, so that, that's important to clarify. Because Absolutely. It, it can sound like right. you're sort of proving that this is how consciousness gets booted up. But on that assumption, you have a fairly panpsychist geometry to it, where you could have a, a one-bit conscious agent, which can combine with others, and then, and then we have the combination problem. But so what's problematic about the combination problem and panpsychism generally is that once we imagine that consciousness is everywhere, or almost everywhere, you know, down to one bit of information processing or down to electrons, you have one, again, as I said, this seemingly counterintuitive feeling that you have all these independent consciousnesses summing up to higher order minds and points of view, which aren't themselves aware of their conscious parts, right? So I seem to be identified with some part of my brain's information processing in this moment. Again, this is on the panpsychist view. I mean, even you know, in, the, in the split brain case, you know, the left hemisphere doesn't know what the right hemisphere is doing, but right. neither of them know what the cerebellum is doing or any single neuron is doing. And if all of those things have independent points of view, that's a, again, it seems like a fairly gratuitous claim to make about matter that we can't inspect from its own side. I mean, I have my point of view, and then I look at all of this other matter, including the matter in my own brain, and from the outside, it gives no indication that there's something that it's like to be that thing. And your view does have, a, have the same problem once we add these other caveats about, we're, now we're talking about interfaces and who knows what the outside reality really is like. You're saying that anything we're encountering in the interface, electrons, glasses of water, you know, thunderstorms, are on their own side conscious agents of a kind. Close. They're Behind the glass of water, there could be an infinite network of conscious agents that, that I've decided is too complicated for me to go into it. And many of those conscious agents could be far smarter than me and far more, you know, have experiences that are far richer than mine. It could be a really, really rich world of conscious agents. 
But because I'm overwhelmed, I just project that all down to what I call a glass of water. So right. it's one thing I can't do is infer the complexity of the conscious agents from the complexity or simplicity of my my own symbols. But the the issue here is that you do inherit the hard problem here in that it's still mysterious why some things seem to be associated with what we know to be consciousness in ourselves mm -hmm. and some things in the world either don't seem that way at all or will present us with a mystery as to whether or not they're conscious. So like because we know that consciousness and the outer appearance of a system break apart. So we know that someone with locked in syndrome may seem in a coma, but in, in fact, you know, consciousness is fully illuminated and merely imprisoned in their body. We know that if we built a robot that was humanoid and had all of the you know the facial displays of emotion and and was uh, you know super intelligent, it would convince us that it was conscious. And if we didn't know anything about the actual instantiation of its intelligence and how consciousness is integrated with physics, we might attribute consciousness to it and be wrong. If in fact consciousness you know isn't everywhere, so we know that there is this apparent hard problem and. You, like a panpsychist, are stipulating that because we know consciousness exists and we can't figure out how it boots up based on unconscious complexity, let's just assume it's everywhere. And again, many, many people will balk at that assumption. Right. So I'll, I'll assume that it's everywhere, not in a spatial sense, but that it's the fundamental foundation right. for our science. Exactly. So, so, that, so there's going to be this vast social network of conscious agents. So... To, to really make my idea clear, I'll, I'll use the metaphor of like the Twitterverse. Well, there's all these Twitter users, they're tweeting and following and so forth. And you know, there's tens of millions of Twitter users, billions of tweets. None of us could actually track all of it. So we will use visualization tools. And it really, the, the tools will ignore most of the complexity of the Twitterverse, right? Maybe I, I'm in Irvine, maybe I'll be looking at, at who's the, the most active in Irvine, I get, but I have no idea what's happening in New York. All the stuff that's going on in New York, even though it might be far more complicated than what's going on in Irvine, to me gets relegated to some really trivial part of my, my visualization tool. That's just because of my interests. And so the, the point will be that, that what's trivial in my interface is an artifact of what's of interest to me, not a, a representation of the true nature of the, of the Twitterverse. And so when I see something that I that think is like really trivial and doesn't look even alive, much less conscious, like, like an atom or something like that, mm. that is just my interface saying, I'm going to ignore all the other stuff about conscious, the, the Twitterverse that's out there, or the consciousnesses that are out there. I'm really focused now on something that I call Sam and Annika. Those are the things that are really important for me to represent in, in my interface, and the other stuff is not. So, so the problem that I've got is is a real technical problem, though, in, in the following sense. I have to propose a precise mathematical mapping from this Twitterverse of consciousnesses into the space-time interface of Homo sapiens. And that it has to be absolutely mathematically precise, and I have to say and be able to tell you what parts of this consciousness first, the, the, the Twitterverse, my, my consciousness first, gets projected to atoms and why it does that. 
and what new predictions I would make about the behavior of atoms given this. So I have a, so you're absolutely right. So I've got a technical problem I've got to solve. And, and, but for me, it's stating precisely with mathematical precision, the mapping from the conscious agent Twitterverse into space and time in such a way that most of the consciousnesses look like inanimate matter in my interface, but some of them like Sam and Annika don't look inanimate. So I, I need to give that precise mapping or I'm wrong. So absolutely. Okay. So here we're getting right to the core okay. of my biggest problem <laughs> with, with your theory, and it begins with the term agents. And so I, sure. I just want to start with that. Sure. It also relates to everything Sam was saying about panpsychism and why I actually don't think there's a combination problem okay. in, in your instance or, or in, in at least my version of panpsychism. Okay. So it seems kosher to me. I mean, I, I think it seems suspect to, to some people, but I think it seems kosher to me to assume consciousness as as fundamental, right? And so your your math, you're just that that's the thing you're smuggling in. Absolutely. The math is representing consciousness as Absolutely. fundamental. I would argue that it it's it's just as it's an analogous assumption to to assume that consciousness comes in out of some non-conscious processing non-conscious matter that that does some kind of processing and then create I, I think to me those are equivalent assumptions. So so to me it, it's kosher for you to say the math represents consciousness in, in some sense. Mm -hmm. Agent, to me, is, is, is unnecessary. I think there are, there are many other words you could use. Mm -hmm. And I think it smuggles in. It's, it raises many red flags to me because mm -hmm. it sounds very anthropomorphic. It points to something which many people, including myself and, and many neuroscientists, think is actually an illusion of, of the human right. mind. Right. And so... And I, and I think a lot of the interpretations that come out of your theory, and even the way you talk about the math and, and thus the combination problem, mm -hmm. is coming from this term. And so I, I'm really challenging you on using this term agent, because yeah. it seems to me to be introducing a lot of unnecessarily complicated mm -hmm. ideas and assumptions about what that thing is in the math that, that it represents. Right. Well, it's so also think, linked to the free will concern. Yes, so. yes. Right, right. Um, but it, just to stay where we are, and then I think we'll, we'll just naturally move to, to free will. So I should, I should go back a little bit, just because this is one of the central focuses of my book. I talk about panpsychism. We were, we were speaking before. I, I use panpsychism as kind of an umbrella term, which I actually think is not that useful. And, I'm, and I said I'm using it less and less. I think right. we can just suppose or, or wonder whether consciousness is fundamental. And I used to kind of consider that question under panpsychism, and I think panpsychism has, has, has too many things about it that everything you said about it, I totally agree with, all, all the problems with it, all the reasons why I wouldn't be a proponent of it. So, so rather than talk about panpsychism, we can just talk about this question, is consciousness fundamental, right. and, and what, what does the universe look like if that, if that is the case? I think we run into a combination problem when, when we wonder about these things based on the illusion of self and free will that, that human beings have. Mm -hmm. Right. And similarly, I think those problems come up when you call the basic building blocks conscious agents. And so you end up with a combination problem in both cases. And in both cases, I actually think it's, it's a false problem. Mm -hmm. so, so first, I just wanted to talk about why you're using the term agent right. and if it is as accurate to call it 
a bit, a segment of consciousness, a, you know, something. Uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. I've, I've right. rambled so, on long No, it's a really good, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and one of my co- good co- friends and collaborators, Federico Fagin, actually uses the term conscious unit yes, instead of conscious agent. Yes, I like and, that much And that better. might be less... But but I'm glad the word agent is is here because it's prompting uh, the the following conversation yes. about about, about mm-hmm, free will. Mm-hmm. So so here's the technical issue that 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 drives me. When I look at experiences and actions, I want. So I'm, you're right. I'm taking consciousness as fundamental. I'm stipulating that that's one of my miracles. Consciousness exists, and so I'm saying each conscious unit. I'll use the word unit for now. Okay. Each conscious unit has a set of conscious experiences, and those experiences aren't inert. They have consequences. They will lead to actions that will influence the other experiences of other conscious units. And when I look at how I've, the, I'm sort of forced to write that, that down mathematically, I get something that involves probabilities. Right? Given that I have the experience, yes. this one experience, there will be certain probabilities of what will happen to your experiences when, as, when I interact with you. So I'm forced to write down probabilities. And so now the question is, how do I want to understand probability? And, here, and here's now the, the issue. If we're not able, so some of those probabilities may be just epistemic in the sense that maybe there's something that I just don't understand, so I'm writing a probability because I don't know what's really going on. Right. But some of them, in some cases, they're not going to go away. Now, if I'm a physicalist, and I have probabilities that don't go away, no matter how much I know, then I start talking about objective chance. Now, from a physicalist framework, of course... Or many worlds. Yeah, or many worlds. That's right. And in the objective chance notion, I mean, it sounds all clinical... Just, and cl- just, just to, to make sure our audience is keeping up there. So many worlds here would capture probability because if there are a functionally infinite number of parallel universes where people quite similar to ourselves are having quite similar conversations with every possible variant being expressed. The situation we're in is one in which everything that can happen compatible with the laws of physics does happen somewhere. You're never really talking about unactualized possibilities. Right. Just right. everything is everything is, is factual. That, that, that's yeah. right. That can be factual. Mm-hmm. Yes. And my own personal take is that there's a deep, deep problem with this multiverse kind of thing because it has I, something I called totally the measure agree. problem. It's a technical problem where you actually can't track out the probabilities in the multiverse correctly. And until they can actually solve that problem, I'm, I'm not on board. But, but in the case of objective chance, so we're not thinking multiverse now, we're thinking you know, objective chance. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a clean, technical, clinical term, no, no problem. But in fact... In a physicalist universe, objective chance is where we're saying novelty right. is, being proje- is being introduced into this universe. Mm-hmm. This is where explanation stops. Objective chance is explanation stops. We meet darkness. Something new is coming into our physicalist universe that we cannot account for. If we could account for it, we wouldn't be putting objective chance there. So randomness is a synonym for this. As, yeah, the, yes. when, when it's complete randomness, you're yeah. saying there's a source of novelty into our universe that we cannot explain with our current scientific theories. It stops. So to distinguish it from the non-computability of mm. complex systems. So some systems are so complex that we can't foresee their future states, but they're still totally deterministic. 
so this is not actual random. This is just a, a failure to actually compute based on initial conditions. Right. What we're talking about here is something which is a term of quantum mechanics, which is actual randomness. That, that, that's yeah. exactly right. Mm -hmm. that's, and that's the term I'm after here. Mm -hmm. So we have right. something that's actual randomness that no amount of knowledge can re, you know, mm -hmm. get rid of completely. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, though, that you're framing that as though that were a, a whopper epistemologically, but it seems to me that most scientists just have just accepted that as the, the cost of doing yeah. business. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I just want to point out to yeah. people who, who just think objective chance is nothing to see here. There is something to see here. This is right. where novelty is coming into the universe and, and scientific explanation does stop. Right. That, that, mm -hmm. And that's what mm -hmm. one thing Einstein was very unhappy about with, mm -hmm. with the quantum theory. Right. So, so now I have fundamental probabilities that come up when I do this conscious unit analysis where the experiences my conscious experiences influence ex experiences of others. And I write down probabilities that I think no amount of knowledge will erase. And the question is, how shall I understand those probabilities that cannot be reduced by knowledge? Now, if I were to say, look, I'm going to go with objective chance, I'll, I'll just call that objective chance too, I would become a dualist. Because I would be saying there is an unconscious source of novelty in my universe. But I was trying to create a universe in which consciousness was the fundamental thing, and that's all there is. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to be a dualist. So, well, why is it unconscious if you are pushing consciousness into spaces that you can't inspect from their own side and verify that they're conscious? Ah. Most of my mental processes are unconscious to me, right? Right. When I, I teach Introduction to Psychology, I tell the students at some point, 99.9% .9 of your mental processes are unconscious. Right. The way I think, I, mean, I usually don't go further with them on that. I, I just leave it at that. But I think the following. All of Sam's processes, mental processes, are unconscious to me. But I don't think that Sam is unconscious because I'm not conscious of Sam's processes. That would be silly. The fact that I'm not conscious of Sam's mental processes doesn't mean that Sam is completely unconscious. And I, I apply the same thing to my own mental processes. The fact that most of my mental processes are unconscious to whoever, whatever the conscious unit is that's talking to you right now, doesn't mean that they are unconscious simpliciter. There are many, many other conscious units that are interacting, that have their own realms of consciousness. I describe that, that whole dynamics of consciousness as what, quote unquote, my unconscious processes. And absolutely, all of those conscious agents of which I'm unconscious are absolutely determining most of my behavior. What, if I have any little free will as a conscious unit myself, it's a tiny little contribution that maybe pushes a little bit of needle, but most of it is done outside of me. So all the stuff you know, that we can predict with EEGs seven seconds before I make a choice, what I'm going to do and things, that's perfectly fine with me. But, but if we're agreeing that causality outside of space and time is not really correctly described as causality, right. it's more, more of a relationship. I mean, almost like a web where one piece moves, the, the, the other piece moves. There's, there's right. a, there's a, it's, more, it's better described as a connection, if we can describe it at all. Sure. The thought of agency or of choice or, or of any of those things, to me, just doesn't apply in the same way that causality doesn't apply. Well, also just... So this is my, I don't know if you've heard my take on free will, but yes. the standard view is that 
free will is something kind of like consciousness. We know we have it, and yet it's very hard to explain in terms of physical cause and effect. That I don't think is the, the situation we're in at all. In fact, I think there's no evidence for it, even in our direct experience. So like the, right. the struggle to figure out how to make sense of it philosophically and scientifically, I think is based on a, a cognitive illusion. And I agree. You do agree? Yes. Okay. And I, I've read your book a couple of times and reread it just in the last few days. And it turns out when I look at the mathematics of these conscious units, where so they have the experiences and then the, the mathematical thing that says how they will affect how I interact with other consciousnesses. It turns out the mathematics itself says exactly what you say in the book, that whatever, however I want to interpret these probabilities, and I, I, you know, I might interpret them as some kind of small amount of agency, because those, that Markovian kernel is not in my space of conscious experiences, I am not conscious of my choices. The mathematics is actually, I didn't, it was my collaborators who pointed this out to me. The mathematics actually tells me that you cannot be conscious of your choice process because of just the structure of what it would mean to But you're act. giving a choice process to the individual components of the fundamental nature of reality. Yeah. Well, in a technical <laughs> sense, what I'm saying is if I want to write down the simplest mathematical structure for how consciousnesses could have an influence, yes. I write down a Markovian kernel. But, and when I do that, the structure of Markovian Markovian kernel but you don't itself. even have to call it an influence, I think. I mean, it, it's, it, it seems better described as change, change that takes place. That's perfectly fine. I can say just, okay. yeah. So my okay. conscious experiences lead to a change that takes place in other conscious experiences. Or just related to changes that take but place. I, I, well, I don't quite see why I mean, you're I, going there, because we can, we can maintain the standard language of cause and effect. No, I don't and, think we can. And get rid of free will. Yeah, no, but I think we have to get rid of all of it. Okay, I don't but think that, any of this makes it, sense with within. I mean, I think it's all too anthropomorphic, and I think mm. if we really want to understand what's happening at a fundamental level, we have we can't anthropomorphize any of it. And 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 the terms that I keep suggesting that you use to me are much more neutral, and are are out of the bounds of free mm -hmm, will and mm -hmm. causality, which I think both have to be gone. In, well, let's in leave a world it. Let's leave aside the the causality picture just because that's it's very hard to talk about anything in well, no no because in english without admitting that ca no, 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 causes no 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 i actually think it's important because causality is the thing he's trying to explain with agency right but the, the, the thing that troubles i think that troubles us most about this notion of agency and agents mm -hmm. is that it seems to slide readily into some assertion about the reality of free will to me they're they're, they're both related and they both need to be tackled, but we, we can stay okay. on free will. But, but I'm, I'm interested in is the fact that you agree that free will is an illusion doesn't seem to track with some of the things you've right. said about, about conscious agents. Well, so free will in, in the following sense, that the idea that I'm completely free to do whatever I want is obviously, obviously right. false. And, well, yeah. and, you, and your book does a great job of showing you know how tumors and the whole bit could track us and, and so forth. So what I have in the, in the definition of a conscious unit is this mathematical thing which tracks change. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the structure of it, it's, it, it turns out, as far as I can tell, there's no way that I can write down a notion of change in which the changing process itself is part of your experience. So the, the actual syn the mathematical syntax that you're forced to write down, when you write down how experiences influence. But if it's all consciousness at bottom, then the change is an experience. It, but but it turns out the mathematics says it's not. 
there is a set of Annika's conscious experiences. And there's a set of Don's conscious experiences. And then there's countless different functions by which your experiences could affect my experiences. And those functions themselves are something different from the set of experiences. And so th literally the influence thing, the, the reason why I have to then say it's not just conscious experiences that are fundamental, it's a slightly more complex structure. It's conscious experiences together with these influencing maps that are the fundamental structure that I'm proposing. This is true not just between separate conscious agents, but within any conscious agent, right? So, like, so what, what about Annika at time zero and Annika at time two? There's a cascade of influences between those two time points in a system. I've smuggled time into the, equa into exactly the equation right. here. But. And that would not be a direct experience. It's, it's not in the set of... So as a mathematician, right, I have to say, okay, these are Annika's experiences. These are Sam's experiences. These are Don's experiences. Now these maps by which we're affecting each other's experiences, those are maps. They're not in those sets. And so they are something else that as a theorist, I'm going to have to say, in addition to the conscious experiences, there are these things that aren't experienced, which are the ways that the influences between conscious experiences happen. And they are not directly experienced. And that's the sense in which I was agreeing with something in, yeah. in Sam's book that we're not, if you ask her, you know, can I actually be conscious of making the choice? No, I, 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 you, know, you, you can't actually do that. But it actually squares with the mathematics that I'm talking about. There may be a way to write down a mathematical formalism in which the interactions of consciousness is, is also itself, that interaction is, is conscious. The formalism that, that... Well, it seems like that's what you would have to do for your theory as it stands to and, work. And I've not done that. Right. I've done something different, and I don't know how to do the, what I just described. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. What happens in our formalism is that there are the set of Annika's conscious experience, set of Sam's conscious experience and mine, and the influences that propagate back and forth are mathematically something different than those sets of conscious experiences. So then how do you have, maintain consciousness as fundamental? So, so the idea then is that it's that what is fundamental is a structure. The structure involves both a set of conscious experiences and the influence maps. So you actually have another element. You don't absolutely. No. It's it's not just a set of conscious experiences. There's also this this Markovian kernel influencer map, and those together turn out to, to be required. So so then why be tempted to follow the path of the panpsychist insofar as you do? and push consciousness as far into the other parts of the apparent interface yeah, I mean, my, as you my, do. My feeling is that it has to be fundamental or not. If it's fundamental, it's truly fundamental, which means experience is pervasive. R right. So what I'm saying is fundamental is conscious experience and its ability to influence. Those two things together are fundamental. Why do we need the word influence? Why can't it just be <laughs> but, but why do we need the word consciousness? <laughs> well, because that's the whole point of this exercise. We have this thing, consciousness, that's mysterious, the material world uh, and science as we know it, can't explain it. Can't, can we put consciousness first and see what happens? Right. So this is within the context of that game. But... Right. And so what I'm proposing is that part of what we mean by consciousness is the experiences, but also part of what we mean by consciousness is the fact that it, it experiences themselves are not inert. They do something. They influence other conscious experiences. And when you take that aspect of it very, very seriously, you realize that the influence itself is, it seems to be forced to have a different mathematical description 
than the actual experiences. But the problem for me, so if you start with the assumption of physicalism, and then right. you try to think about consciousness. Or I, I just want to insert for physicalism, I mean, it does include all of the mysteriousness that we have. You can be a physicalist and still think there's something more fundamental than space and time. Of course, yeah. yeah. And also recognize that we're not in touch with whatever the base layer of reality yes. is. Right. Certainly not in, in sensory terms. But if you're a physicalist trying to think about what consciousness is doing, it's not obvious to me that it's doing anything, mm -hmm. right? It, and, and therefore, it's not obvious that it evolved, right? Mm -hmm. It certainly didn't evolve mm -hmm. under selective pressure if it's not right. doing anything, right. right? So if consciousness is an epiphenomenon, it's not to say that it, it couldn't have emerged over the course of evolution and been conserved without doing anything. I mean, we know we have, we have that concept of a, sure. what uh, Stephen Jay Gould despite his other intellectual crimes, usefully called a, a spandrel. Sure. And this, and this actually does connect with you know, the, the subjective reason why I would deny the reality of free will, which is that of all the things I can be conscious of, the reality is, is that thoughts and intentions simply appear, and they appear right. on the basis of some plenum at my back that I can't inspect, right? I can't right. think the next thought until I think it. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm going to intend to do until the intention itself arises. And so that's just subjectively speaking, that's just the fact that things are being born into, into view by processes that I, as the conscious witness of my experience, don't author and can't say that. I'm they, completely they, on board with that. And that, that actually fits in with the mm -hmm. formalism of conscious units that I've been developing. It, 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 it says that most of the changes in, in the experiences that a unit has it has no idea why they changed or how they changed. And, and any influence that that unit has on other consciousnesses, it is not aware of how it's influencing the other units, their, their consciousnesses. Right. But the thing is, again, taken from the side of physicalism, it seems to never be the case that it's by virtue of the fact that it was conscious that the influence was made, right? So like the, the, the consciousness part isn't intrinsic to the, the causal efficacy. And when I, even when I look at my own experience, like I, I imagine, I, again, you know, consciousness is this, the only thing I'm ever directly in touch with. But if I imagine that the, the conventional physicalist, the emergentist picture is true in, in some way, however hard that hard problem is to solve, and consciousness is, is arising based on some part of my brain's information processing, whatever consciousness is at the level of the brain, let's just say that it is in fact true that it does have causal power. Certain things can only be done by virtue of you know, having appeared in consciousness. The cash value of its causal power is still always whatever it really is at the level of information processing in the physical brain, right? Mm -hmm. So like a fact that there's, a, there's the what it's like to be me component to it is, again, we could have an identity theory here. It could be two, sure. two sides of the same coin, but it's the fact that there's the other side of the coin where the, you know, the billiard balls of neurochemistry keep banging into each other, that is clearly the, the causal efficacy in the physical world that we... Absolutely. In, in a physicalist framework, that's exactly the right way to, to think about things. Absolutely. And I'm on board. In the case where we're trying to get a theory in which consciousness is fundamental and conscious experiences and their influence are fundamental, the way that I'm going to try to handle analogously what you're handling in the physicalist framework is to say, for any particular conscious unit, its influence its own, its specific ability to influence is almost trivial compared to all the other agents or units, conscious units in the whole network that part of, part of whom are, are, you know, combining to form this unit. 
And so they're part of all of us, quote unquote, unconscious processes. So all their little tiny contributions are overwhelming and almost entirely conclusive about this one, what this one little unit will do. Right. It has only the tiniest little bit of the needle that it can move. But what does it mean to say that their consciousness is part of their causal powers? Or is it, is, is it just as epiphenomenal in that case as it is in the physicalist well, case? Well, it's a primitive of the theory, right? So this mm -hmm. is where my explanation stops. Mm -hmm. uh, right. To say that, so just like it's, it's a primitive in, in the physicalist theory to say that, um, you know, an, an electron absorbs a photon and changes state and then emits the photon. How does it do that? that that's a primitive of the theory. And, and so for so every sign, and that's why I started early on because I knew we were going to get to the point where mm -hmm. it seems like magic is happening. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that we yeah. know everybody's got yeah. magic happening. Yep. So here's my magic. Conscious experiences have influences. Yeah. That's my but fundamental it's, it's assumption. It seems to me that there could be another way to say that or another way to describe what you're seeing in your theory and in the math. And it seems to me, which I hope is true <laughs> because it makes me feel more, more, even more supportive of what you're doing, that, I guess I can pose this as a question, is, is there room, as you see it in your theory, for more than one field? Yes. Uh, and in fact, in, in fact, there could be, I have to let my imagination go. What, mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. the mathematicians that are far better than me on my team are telling me is that I need to really open up to all sorts of ways that consciousnesses right. can influence each other. And, and that there could be entire new fields of way that they influence each other that Hoffman hasn't even thought Th about. That makes much more sense to me that conscious experience would be part of a bigger picture. Of a dynamic. Right. And that also would explain my interpretation of this physicalist world we see that, you know, in the past I have, I have called panpsychic, but I actually think that's just not the right word. But I mean, even when we're seeing it through our physicalist lens, that seems like a correct way to view the physicalist world that we are encountering mm -hmm. where consciousness is fundamental. But mm -hmm. then suddenly that those views are, are completely aligned as far as I can tell. I think your point is well taken. So I'll just maybe put it this way and see if you like that, that, mm -hmm. that consciousness isn't static, it's dynamic. Conscious experiences mm -hmm. are dynamic. And when I look at that dynamics, and I look at each conscious unit that I write down and look at its contri contribution to that whole overall dynamics, each one is contributing a little tiny Everything, bit to it. It's all interrelated. And it's, and it's all interrelated. Yeah. And, and, and so just like in a physicalist framework, it looks like, you know, if I'm making a decision, all this, it's overwhelmed by all the neurophysiology that's going on and all the and my, if I had any contribution, all would be trivial. Mm -hmm. It's the same yeah. in this conscious no, dynamic. No, that makes perfect sense it to makes me. perfect sense there. Yeah. The, the only question then is, how do we interpret probabilities, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a physicalist and these are, you know, can't be reduced, then it's an objective chance. And, and the question for us, if we're trying to build a theory in which consciousness is fundamental and we have a dynamic that's probabilistic, we have to be hard-nosed and say, what? are we saying about reality mm -hmm. when we talk about probabilities that cannot be reduced? Mm -hmm. It can't be objective chance because now you're a dualist. And so we have to give a hard reasoned answer to that, that question. What do probabilities mean that can't be reduced by further knowledge? Why does that make you a dualist? Because if, if, if I'm trying to have a monistic theory in which conscious 
consciousness, conscious experience is fundamental and there's a dynamic of consciousness and nothing else. Having, well, but there are also going to be different variations on conscious experiences, different kinds of combinations, yes. different kinds of dynamics. But, but if I have a source of novelty into this universe, you know, this my proposed conscious universe. We have the same source of novelty in the physical universe for physical monism. It just is part of the quantum fluctuation that we don't understand. Why can't you have the, the conscious variant of that, which still makes you a monist? And that's what I'd have to do. Mm -hmm. So, so when, mm -hmm. when physicalists talk about objective chance, they'll, they'll often say impersonal objective chance, right? To make sure that you, there's, there's no ghosts or no, mm -hmm. nothing mystical going on there. So if, if I wanted to use the phrase objective chance in, in my framework, it would have to be, you'd have to get rid of the word impersonal. It's not about personalities and, and you know, individuals as, as like human subjects, mm -hmm, but it's just mm -hmm. that it's, it's, it's conscious experiences themselves and their dynamics that has to be the source of all influences or all, all dynamics. If I, if I countenance anything that was, wasn't that, I, I don't want to go there if it's going to be a dualist. If someone can convince me that it's not a dualism, I'm fine, right? Well, so one thing I was thinking, reading your book, is how similar your view is to the various flavors of idealism that exist in in the philosophical literature. So, uh, you know, one, uh, what's your sense of that, and and why not use the term? First, I agree; it is very, very similar to you know Barclay's idealism and Kant's idealism, and so forth. Actually, before we go further in that, I should define idealism. So idealism is contrasted to traditionally materialism or more, in a more modern sense, physicalism in asserting that one thing exists, but this thing is not the material world, it's not the physical world, it is mind on some level or consciousness on some level. So it's a, it's a monistic view, i.e. there's one thing, there's not two things or many other things. And yes, as you say, Barclay and, and other philosophers have, have had this kind of view. Right. I, I chose to call my approach conscious realism instead of idealism for, for a couple of reasons. First, in, in many cases, if someone hears the word idealism, they just pigeonhole you, oh, I know what you're talking about. And, and I'm doing something a, a bit different than what Barclay and Kant are doing in, in a couple of ways. First, I'm, I'm proposing a mathematically precise theory of consciousness. And idealism heretofore has just been a philosophical point of view. It's not been a scientific theory. Hmm. And so I wanted to have a, a mathematically precise theory in which consciousness is fundamental. And I didn't want the, the, the whole approach to be dismissed from the get-go because people think that they know from the philosophical literature what this new scientific theory is saying, and, and, and they won't. And, and the, another reason I, I didn't call it idealism is that in many cases in the past, idealism has been associated with an anti-science point of view. And Barclay's idealism was motivated, at least in part, as a reaction to the, um, the mechanism of, of Newton and the, the perceived threat that Barclay had that Newton's mechanism might threaten the church and so forth. And so, so in, in many cases, idealism has never been formulated as a precise science. And in many cases, it's been put out there as an anti-science kind of mm. point of view. And so I wanted to really put out what I call conscious realism to say, look, this is a mathematically precise theory of consciousness, and it's not anti-science. It's hopefully the next step in science. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the other connection is that idealism has often been linked up with 
explicitly religious thinking and and aspirations. And so, yes. for instance, what what's the relationship between death and the ground truth of reality, whatever it is? So, if, if physical death of the if you're a physicalist, the physical death of the brain suggests that whatever mind is, whatever consciousness is, it ends there. Right. Well, idealists generally want to say that if reality is just mind at bottom or consciousness at bottom, well, that gives some motivation to this idea that we may survive our deaths and, and go mm-hmm. into some other condition. Do, do you have an intuition about that? Does your does your thesis say anything about life and death? Well, it allows a physicalist framework, of course, does not. I mean, once the 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 brain is disintegrated, there's no consciousness available, and so there's no survival. In a, in conscious realism, the since the the body is just a user interface symbol. It's just an avatar. It's not the final reality. And and in this framework, consciousness creates space and time and the brain, not vice versa. It leaves it open that it could be that death, what we call death, is just simply stepping out of one interface and into another. So mm-hmm. to, to be really concrete, suppose you're with, go with some friends to a virtual reality arcade and you're playing virtual volleyball and you, you put on your headset and bodysuit and you see a, a beach and net and palm trees and the avatars of your friends and you play volleyball for a while and then one of your friends says you know i'm i'm thirsty i need to get a drink and so he takes off his headset and bodysuit and his avatar collapses in the sand well in the interface it looks like he's dead but he's he's fine he just stepped out of the interface and so i don't know what my frame what the mathematics is going to say but the framework certainly allows that something of consciousness is not destroyed in what we call death Except within our interface, if you gradually destroy parts of the seeming brain, whatever that is, you progressively degrade certainly the mental capacities of the the person in question. And so this would suggest that destroying everything at death allows for some reboot into another interface with some complete faculties intact. Well, it's also presupposing a self, right? I mean, well, not 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 actually. I mean, like on the on the Buddhist view, there's no self that gets carried over from one. No, life but to that's what I'm life. saying. It doesn't make sense in this view either, because of the the example you just gave. So, if consciousness can experience different interfaces, there's still a sense in which yourself, the idea of you as this concrete thing doesn't make sense that 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 would travel to another interface. I mean, and and Sam's example, I think, is the best way to to illuminate that, that that there is no self to go from here, you know, to take the headphones off. (laughs) That's right. There's no self-wearing headphones. And so that's kind of where the analogy breaks down. And so if there's some sense in which consciousness extends to other interfaces or just vastly different types of experience from from the type of experience you and I are having, I would expect that to be as different as whatever experience is behind mm. the glass. It's it's still relating to whatever the ultimate reality, the kind of the shape of it in, in that moment. I don't think in your theory there's room for a, a fully intact Donald Hoffman-like self <laughs> To, to move into a completely different interface. Right. So absolutely the notion of a self is not fundamental in my theory. Right. The notion of a conscious unit has no notion of a self. 
Right. If, if, if you're going to have a self, you actually have to build networks of these conscious units to construct a self, and it's, it's, not, it's not a trivial thing. So the idea that the self that's called Donald Hoffman might survive death is, I mean, that's not necessarily guaranteed by the theory that I'm looking at. It, it, it may be that consciousness con, you know, continues, but the, the self that's called Donald Hoffman does not. I, that's going to be a, a really interesting technical problem for, for me mm-hmm. to, to look at there. And, well, and I think Sam, Sam's example kind of brings you really close to that because you could, within this experience, you could experience all kinds of brain damage that would make you seem like a very different person, which we no longer yes. recognize as the person you are now. And we wouldn't expect that those separate personality traits and elements had gone into some other right. and, and, interface. And I think that, that this raises an, a, a very important challenge for, for my team, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what Sam brought up there. I mean, it is true. As you do damage to the brain, you do have serious consequences on the consciousness. And as mm-hmm. you get plaques and tangles in Alzheimer's, and eventually, you know, if you do enough damage, the person dies. So how do I understand that within my framework? To answer it, I'm going to have to have a model of, of the interface, namely the brain. What does the brain correspond to in terms of the conscious units that are together? Their dynamical system is creating the, the conscious unit that involves Don. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to have to understand when I, when I do things to the brain, what am I doing behind the brain to all these conscious units. Right. And, and it may be that I'm destroying a coherence in the set of conscious units such that, that the Don doesn't survive. There, there are, the consciousnesses survive, but Don does not. And, and that may be what the mathematics comes up with. So this, this is a serious technical challenge, but the nice thing is it's a technical challenge, right? We have the mathematics. We have to actually do the math. I was reading, rereading a part of your book you say, we naturally think that a tomato is still there, including its taste, odor, and color, even when we don't look. And I think there's a distinction to be made here, which is important, between fundamental reality and conscious experience mm-hmm. of that fundamental reality, for lack of a better way to express it. I, I don't know if this example makes sense, but I, I was thinking of uh, something like a magnetic field, you know, something can talk about in physicalist terms if there's a magnetic field and there, you know, even if we just stay with a tomato, whatever that tomato is in, in ultimate reality, whatever my brain is in ultimate reality, there's, there's some interaction of the light waves bouncing off, the, you know, in the, in the physicalist way we can describe it. And that results in, in the experience I have of seeing a tomato. If we use the classic example of a bat, whatever is behind the, the, the physical reality that we perceive of the bat brain and the tomato, there's a very different flavor to that conscious experience mm-hmm. of interacting with that tomato, right? So there, there's kind of this description of what, what it is, what reality is underneath everything, and then what the experience is of, of that shape of reality. So, I mean, again, for me, it comes back to feeling like there, there's actually something in addition to consciousness going on, that, that I can imagine consciousness being a field, mm. but that there, there's this mm. interaction and interplay between fields that, mm-hmm. that is creating whatever is there, and then our perception of it happens to be our perception. And e- each point of reference would be a, a different type of conscious experience. 
I mean, I think even even in our physicalist framework, it doesn't really make sense to talk about a self. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to neuroscientists and get deep on this issue, th- there's mm-hmm. there's no there there. We we don't think there actually is is a self. There there is just experience of being the brain. There's certainly no unchanging self that's carried through from one moment to the next. I mean, there's a it's a process. It's not a a thing. You're 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 a verb more than you're a noun, from the point of view of right. neuroscience. Right. A default mode network act- activation or right. something. Mm-hmm, right. mm-hmm. So I, but before we move on, I, I want to remind people what is counterintuitive and, and seemingly unscientific about idealism in most of its forms. And I, and I worry that there's some of that stigma attaching here, which is if, if you're going to make consciousness primary, you're, you're, you're making experience primary. Reality is experienced from its own side in some sense more or less everywhere. But then you're, when we talk about phenomenon in our world like the nuclear chain reaction, right? the fact that you could build a bomb based on mere you know, mathematical speculation, we decide that we can unleash a fantastical amount of energy locked inside the atom. And lo and behold, we do that, right? And this is a, you know, a, a physically astonishing event which would have been true of atoms whether or not there were any person around to discover that that was possible. That energy was always locked in the atom, and its reality didn't depend on any conscious agent of the sort we're familiar with, in our own case, being aware of it. And so it is with many other facts. You know, I can name facts about the world which I know by definition no conscious system of of the usual sort can be aware of imagine one that I've never thought of, there has to be some highest prime number that could be made by all of the street addresses in Los Angeles combined in some way. Now, it's one thing is absolutely obvious. I don't know what that number is, and n- nor does anyone else. My claims about the nature of reality can exceed the framework of any experience that we think is out there that has the lights on currently, right? Mm-hmm. So the boundary we're, we're tempted to put between minds, certainly conscious minds, and the rest of reality can be drawn there at, you know, whatever the rest of reality is, whatever its character, it doesn't seem like it necessarily has any experiential component, and we can keep naming things that don't seem to depend upon experience or will ever be associated with experience within any, within any time frame that seems reasonable. You make a great point, Sam, and especially the point about mathematics is is interesting to me. Part of the question for me is how do I think about mathematics in this framework in which consciousness is fundamental? Because there are all these mathematical truths. And when I say that conscious experiences are fundamental, I'm also including mathematics in the following sense. There's a field called psychophysics, and I've done a lot of work in psychophysics where we actually do rigorous experiments on on human subjects to study their conscious experiences. And what what you find is that conscious experiences are not amorphous. They're structured. We can write down mathematical equations that predict when you will start to flip from seeing something as two-dimensional to three-dimensional, for example. And it's, it's quite stunning that everywhere we go when we study conscious experiences, we see mathematical structure. And the relationship, from my point of view, between conscious experiences and mathematics is very much like body and bones. It's the, the, 
that consciousness is not something separate from mathematics, that mathematics is in some sense the bones, the structural bones of, of, of consciousness. And so in this monistic worldview that I'm proposing, which consciousness is fundamental, mathematics is the structure of consciousness. Then there are all these mathematical theorems that you know, no one's ever thought about, right? And so forth. And this leads to, it's interesting because I'm wondering what, if I'm going to have the theory in which consciousness is fundamental and there's a dynamic, what is the dynamic about, right? I mean, I'm going to have to answer that question at some point. What is the dynamic of consciousness and why? And here's one possibility. I don't know if this is right, but this is, it's fun. Gödel's theorem, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, says that no matter what set of axioms you come up with, if, if they're sophisticated enough to give you arithmetic, there will be statements that are true that you cannot prove within that system. They're, they're, they're true of that system, but you can't prove it within the system. And you can add new axioms and you'll get, including the, the truth that you couldn't prove, you can add that as an axiom, but there'll then be new truths you can't prove. And what, what Gödel is essentially telling us is that the exploration of mathematical structure is endless. There is no end to it. And if mathematical structure is nothing but the bones of consciousness, it leads to a very interesting idea that what is consciousness up to? It's like a kid in a candy store. There's endless exploration, endless things to explore, endless forms of consciousness, and that's what it's about. And the exploration will never stop. And so there's a sense in which for any given consciousness, as you said, no particular consciousness may have yet considered this structure, but that's maybe what consciousness is about, is an evolution in which all possible structures, which is endless, are explored in, in terms of actual experiences that consciousness can take. Mm. So I, I don't know if that's right, but it, but it does fit in with what you were asking. All right, so it seems like a nice segue into my next question. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever taken psychedelics? After people have read my book, I've gotten emails that said, you must have mm. taken psychedelics. And I've not even smoked a cigarette in my entire life. And, but I, of course, have many, many mm. friends who, who have taken mm -hmm. psychedelics and, and some who are, are really experienced yeah. psychonauts. And I've listened very, very carefully to them. And I won't mention names, but it does seem to me that mm -hmm. the kinds of experiences that you get in like 5-MeO-DMT in particular, but psych, you know, LSD mm -hmm. and so forth, could possibly, possibly be viewed as either a loosening up of a particular interface, it's loosening its grip on you, um, like in some DMT experiences, you're actually seeing other guides or, or you know, entities mm. that are talking with you and so forth. So, you know, is that some of these other conscious units, but under a different interface form that you wouldn't have seen otherwise? Possibly. But under 5-MeO-DMT, in large doses, I've had people tell me that they go beyond all space and time. They go beyond having a body. They go into a, a very, very deep, deep space of, of reality that's very, very blissful very, very peaceful, and it feels like home. Yeah, yeah. This is this, this experience you and I were talking about, I was talking about with you when, when I took psilocybin, which is, is the source of, of some of my intuitions around my thinking and, and, and my book and my interest in, in the topic. It'd be very interesting and, and potentially beneficial for you to have an experience like that as I agree. As, I, I, as I've heard that your, it really loosens yeah. things up and mm -hmm. opens your creativity. And, and opens but why haven't you done nothing, including 
tried a cigarette. Mm. So, so does it doesn't mean you, if you've never had a, a drink of alcohol as well? Uh, I've, I've had some alcohol, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, but I've, funny, I've never had enough to get drunk. So mm. very, very conservative in, in that. On the cigarette side, my dad was a smoker, so yeah, I didn't yeah. need to. It was, yeah, it, it was ugly. Yeah. By the time I was 15, yeah. I knew it was ugly, and I, I, I was not interested. Right. But how come no uh, consciousness-altering compounds? I think part of it was my history growing up in a fundamentalist Christian conservative. Yeah. My dad was a fundamentalist minister, mm. so there was all these restrictions. It, it took me decades to sort of work my way out, you know, to recover from that. So I, I wasn't doing anything. As, but then, you know, now that I've sort of worked my way out of it, and I don't have those restrictions, it's now a matter of, uh, you know, how much gray matter do I have left? And how much do I want to experiment with the gray matter that I've got left? Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's partly it's for, for health reasons. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's right. And I have met people mm-hmm. that, that I, I know and love on these things and that have taken a lot. And I, I think there are consequences yeah. with, with taking up. But, but taking once or twice, I don't think there'll be too many consequences. So, so I, may, I may at some point. I haven't, haven't yeah, made well, the decision. Well, it, it depends what compound you're talking about because as far as I know, all the data now on certainly LSD, DMT, and psilocybin mm-hmm. suggest that they're physically benign. I mean, you can have a, a mm-hmm. scary psychological experience on them, but I would put them in a different class than something like MDMA or you know other drugs mm-hmm. like methamphetamine or cocaine. Or I mean, it's just they're, they're drugs that show some profile of neurotoxicity, and there's some that don't. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly with something like LSD, the minuscule amount that you're taking, I mean, it's measured in micrograms rather than milligrams. It's mm-hmm. certainly unlike something like MDMA. What about meditation? I do meditate quite a bit. What style? What do you do? It's, there's no tradition. It's, I don't have any particular pose that I use, but I do meditate at least three hours every day. And I have for 17 years. Wow. But what are you doing with your attention that you're calling meditation? I, I have it be a, a relaxation in, in the following sense. I, I re- relax. When thoughts come up, I just relax away from the thoughts. So instead of fighting, trying to fight the thoughts and stop them, I just relax back into silence. And if the, the thoughts keep coming up, I just relax. I relax the body, and I change my body pose as, as needed to feel mm. comfortable and feel like I can be more relaxed in that. So it's it's a matter of, in some sense, letting whatever comes up emotionally come up and letting it go away. It, it, it feels to me actually like a deep emotional healing that, that goes on, that a lot of anxieties and fears that I didn't know were there come bubbling up. And I, you know, initially you resist them and you try to tamp them back down. And then eventually I just let them come up and I, then I let them go. And what I, what I find is that. Um, you know, over the last 17 years of meditation, mm-hmm. the, the total burden of anxiety that I've carried has is, is just been dramatically reduced. But that the particular anxiety I face today is one that I wasn't prepared to face until today. And so it, it's, it's particularly mm-hmm. deep, mm-hmm. and it's, re, it's going to require all the years of meditation that I've had to be prepared to go that deep. It's like mm-hmm. layers of an onion. I, I, I've mm-hmm. gone through the outer layers. The next one is, it's, is more to my core. And, you know, on a personal side, you know, my mother was and father were very, very anxious when my mom was pregnant with me. They, they couldn't even feed themselves for the whole month. They, it was, and my mom and dad were both you know, very, very stressed out. And we know what happens to a fetus when the mother's stressed out. You get methylated. So I was, I was born 
a basket case. But I didn't know it. I was born methylated for anxiety. I didn't really find out until I was about 45 that I had that problem. When I, you know, I started not being able to sleep. And that's when I turned to the meditation 17 years ago. Mm. And I, I, you know, I didn't want to take drugs to deal with it. So I turned to meditation on some days, five, six hours mm-hmm. of meditation. To, where to did deal you with get it. the idea to go to meditation? Was there, where did the idea come from? It was funny. I, had a, I have a friend named Joe Arpea who wrote a book on meditation. Oh. He, he was a student at UCI and, and, and a friend. And he asked me to write a foreword for the book. And this was before I had doing any. So I, I, I read the book and wrote a, you know, a, wrote a review or something for him. I forgot what it was. But it, it put the, the, you know, mm, the bug in there. The seed, yeah. And then mm. when I actually came to the point where I you know, had some trouble, I realized, yeah. well, it's probably either taking antidepressants mm-hmm. or meditation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to take the antidepressants. Yeah. And so I decided... I better jump in on... What type of meditation do you know? Did, was he writing about or did he teach? He, his was a more, I think, Buddhist kind of thing. He had mm-hmm. some forward by some Buddhist scholars on, on, on his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like what you're doing is mindfulness. I mean, that, that's right. the, the Buddhist practice of just witnessing thoughts and emotions arise and pass away. And every time you notice you're lost in thought, you just come back to yes. the feeling in the body or listening to sounds or I mean, you, as you get more concentration, you can notice thoughts themselves as they arise you know, and not get absolutely uh, identified I, with them. I think you're right. That's, that's, that's what I, is that the kind that you use, Sam? Or? Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly the, the basis of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that, that's usually referred to now by, as mindfulness. Mindfulness. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we could go deep down that rabbit hole, but I, I'll mm-hmm. resist because I, I, I'm mindful of your time. The three of us have aged considerably <laughs> over the course of now I think at close to three hours I'm really grateful for your time too yeah no it's really it's great Annika do you have any place you want to go doesn't it seem that where we're left with all of this that that even if you're able to make great progress with the math and with your theory and and come to some point of a feeling that you're confident that this is correct or likely to be correct what would constitute proof? I mean, it seems to me to be out of the realm of scientific hmm. experiment. When we're talking about consciousness, you could tell me there's some theory that says that th- there is consciousness in the atoms of this sofa that I'm sitting on, but how would we ever be able to confirm? It, it, it seems that it's just impossible to confirm. So I'm just wondering if, if there's some sense in which this can result in some type of scientific experiment or what, what, what would constitute proof? Right. That's, that's a critical question for a scientist. And the bottom line for me is that if my theory of consciousness, when I project it back, so I have to have a theory of consciousness and its dynamics. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely precise. I have to have a mathematically precise mathematical function that projects it into our space-time interface because that's where we're going to get our data for any experiments. Mm-hmm. And then the first thing that, th- the first test of my theory will be, if the dynamics, when it's projected into space-time, does not give me back all of the consequences of evolution by natural selection, general relativity, and quantum field theory, if I can't do that, I'm wrong. Right? That's, that's, that's flat out, I'm wrong. So already there's going to be all the, the sciences that we have right now are going to be a, a, a acid test for this deeper theory. Except that you're starting with this base assumption that you're calling th- this foundational math 
you're you're saying that it represents consciousness, but That's I'm just right. wondering if there's any way in which that can ever be confirmed, right. or will that always just be an assumption? Well, so what I will be able to do is to see if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. right? So if if there are things that that if I can't do them, the theory is absolutely wrong, right? What I can't do is prove that I'm right. Mm-hmm. But but that's not unique to my theory. No scientist can ever prove that the theory is right. So the best we can do is get evidence that e- either disconfirms our theory or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, reduces our credence in the theory, or that in some sense increases our, our credence in the theory. But it's, it's sort of an elementary point in the philosophy of science that you can never, no scientist can ever prove their theory. And, and even falsification in the strict popper sense you may not strictly be able to falsify a theory. You may, because there's so many auxiliary hypotheses that go into a theory that you don't know which one is the faulty one if things go wrong. But my theory can be tested as much as any scientific theory can be. And one test that I would take as absolutely critical is if I can't get back evolution by natural selection mm-hmm. and, you know, say, quantum field theory, when I project it into our space-time interface, I would take that as clear evidence that I've got the wrong theory of consciousness or that the whole approach is wrong. Right. So I would take that as as, right. as really strong evidence against me. Yeah, well, and, and that makes sense and, and that's useful, but I, there's, I just can't help but get stuck on the fact that consciousness is uniquely mysterious in that it's not something you can ever view from the outside. And so what we're, if we're stuck, if we're in an interface, we're stuck in an interface in which I can't ever know any other conscious experience but my own. Right. Well, I, are you asking, is <laughs> yeah. there a version of your theory that leaves consciousness out entirely or leaves con- or, or, or does not hmm. push consciousness into the fabric of reality? So you just take the, you take the interface problem, which is we know we're out of touch with reality as it is. Right. Is there a way of doing your theory while remaining agnostic as to what is actually conscious and what isn't? Absolutely. I could certainly take it that way. So I could propose that there's just this deeper dynamical system mm-hmm. and have a dynamics, a Markovian dynamics on graphs. Right. And so right. forth. And then maybe try to make connections between that and, and other attempts that physicists are making to get a deeper theory, right? right. So they're looking yes. at things like entanglement networks. Mm-hmm. So somehow maybe entanglement could be more fundamental than space-time and entanglement is woven, it, it creates space-time. And you know, Nimar Kani Hamid is going after something called the amplitudehedron, which is mm-hmm. in a space he doesn't know what, what it's about, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a deeper space with symmetries that can't be seen in space-time. So there, that's one reason that's really interesting, is that there are these symmetries that are real, but yeah. they can't be captured in space-time. Yeah. So I could, I, I could certainly go after it that way. So I could say, look, there's this deep, just it's a dynamics on networks outside of space and time. And when I get the right dynamics on it and project it into space-time, I get back all of physics, so I'm good. Mm-hmm. And I would be fine with that. The only reason I don't take it there is because I'm really motivated by the hard problem of consciousness. If I went that way, at the end, I would have a, a nice new extension of physics, and it would be great. Physics would, would be advanced, but I would be stumped on the hard problem of consciousness right. still. Except you're still stumped in the same way that a panpsychist is stumped, in that it's not actually explanatory to say that consciousness goes all the way down and it makes it seem like consciousness is no longer a mystery because it's you don't have to explain its emergence right but that it's the mystery is still there no, in some sense the mystery is always there and, and also the boundary between what is indisputably conscious and what you can't access 
Mm -hmm. based on your own consciousness, is still mysterious. So even with respect to our own brains, like the fact that, you know, as you say, most of what the mind is doing is going on in the dark, that's its own version of the hard problem. Why is it that the totality of my conscious life is either identical to or associated with or supervenient upon or somehow connected to only a subset of the events happening, mm -hmm. you know, in my vicinity? Mm -hmm. So. Two very important points, and on, on the first one, I absolutely agree with you that in some sense, I haven't solved the problem of consciousness. I've just said, I'm going to put that miracle right there on the table, and that's my fundamental miracle, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said earlier on that you know every scientific theory will have miracles, not just mine, but every scientific theory puts its miracles up front, its, mm -hmm. its assumptions. So I agree with you on that one. On the second one, I would take it as one of the obligations for my theory to try to explain why it is that I don't have direct access to your conscious experiences mm -hmm. and why I don't have direct access to the conscious experiences that I call my unconsciousness. That I think mm -hmm. I, I cannot my, help myself to a miracle. That needs to fall out of my theory of consciousness. So I'm going to have the that only- is, That is one of my hopes too, and that's that, why- That's, that's why my I hope. Thought, yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So, But there, there, the, the, miracle, the miracles that I have are- can we call them assumptions? The assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> but but if I if I say it about myself, right? <laughs> but, I don't but, know. I just I, I know how that will hit. Okay, hit, yeah, the assumptions. This particular audience and especially oh, this not, audience. No, 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 not no, not my 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 audience. They know what he means this. by yeah. miracles. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right, because I, so the assumptions that I, these are things that my theory will not explain. One mm -hmm. is that conscious mm -hmm. experiences exist. I'm just taking that as as fundamental, mm -hmm. and the other is that conscious experience is not inert, it's dynamic. Mm -hmm. Those are my two give-me's. Mm -hmm. Those are my two assumptions. And I'm hoping, by the way, the particular way that I cashed out mathematically in terms of Markovian kernels turns out to be computationally universal. What that means is, even though I have not assumed intelligence, memory, problem-solving, learning a self, I have the computational resources in my theory to build all that. Mm -hmm. and so what my team is doing is saying, from this trivial beginning, there are experiences and they're dynamic. And the trivial thing, there's a Markovian kernel to describe this. We then are going to force ourselves to build everything else, learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, and the self. If we can't do that, we're wrong. So instead of assuming the kitchen sink, we have to build the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. That just brings me back to some of the other things I, I was wondering about. So I have, I have one final question, which is, could it be that consciousness itself is not, is not dynamic, but these other fields that it's interacting with are, and consciousness is simply in some, at some basic level, just the experience of all of that dynamics unfolding? And, right. Mm -hmm. I absolutely think that that's possible. And, it's, and thinking about that possibility is going to force me to think, about this whole thing on a much, much deeper level than I'm, I'm thinking right now. It's, it's going to interact with this thing about Gödel's theorem, which is mm -hmm. that, that the, the exploration of structure is endless. Well, what is that space that we're exploring into that consciousness hasn't yet reached? Well, it's something even more fundamental than consciousness. And what is that? And so I'm going to have to go even deeper. I, don't, I, I have nothing intelligent to say right now. <laughs> but, but I do recognize that that even if I get this theory of consciousness to work and it, it gives back all of our you know, interface theories like evolution and general relativity, mm -hmm. 
Right, that once I'm done with that, there may be this deeper thing that Gödel's theorem is pointing at me and saying, look, what you can write down is trivial compared to what you can't write down. And how do I deal with that? I'm pretty sure you're going to have to take mushrooms to deal with that. <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure you are too. <laughs> I want to do this again after so, you take mushrooms. Yeah, yeah so let's, let's schedule that podcast. You'll have the mushrooms here? You'll, you'll have an answer to that question next time. <laughs> well, Don, thank you for taking so much time. This is a heroic, uh, I think it, it's going to be somewhere near three hours. So um, mm-hmm. thank you for uh, just this deep dive into your thinking on this topic. It's fascinating. Well, well thank you, Sam and Annika, both for, for spending your, your time. It was, it was tremendous fun. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, this was great fun.